With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR, the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross. Jim, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm good, buddy. I'm really good. I am not recovering from a hangover like somebody else on this line might be, uh, but I'm feeling good. I feel good. It's a busy week. It's a huge week. I hope that everybody that I know and that are affiliated with any part of AEW, whether it be as a fan, a wrestler, office person, whatever it may be, fully understands how magnificent an opportunity uh, we have debuting on TNT. So uh, it's a big week, and so I'm excited about it. To be honest with you, I started figuring out what I'm going to pack yesterday as we record this uh, on uh, Monday. Uh, Sunday, I was, I never do that. I mean, I'm very anxious to get on the road, very anxious to process started so uh it's going to be a, a mom- momentous week without question well and of course what we're talking about is the debut of aw on tnt which by the time you're listening to this happened last night and then believe it or not tomorrow night smackdown is coming to fox and it kicks off on friday october 4th with the 20th anniversary celebration at 7.30 Eastern, the 20th anniversary show has a huge lineup of WWE superstars and legends, including Hulk Hogan, Roman Reigns, Goldberg, Becky Lynch, Sting, The Undertaker, Ric Flair, and of course, Stone Cold Steve Austin. The 20th anniversary show also marks Brock Lesnar's return to SmackDown, as he's going to be challenging Kofi Kingston for the WWE Championship. In its 20-year history, SmackDown Live has helped launch the careers of pop culture icons including Dwayne The Rock Johnson, John Cena, Triple H, The Bella Twins, and more. And now we're entering the Fox era of SmackDown. Friday Night SmackDown on Fox will bring you edge-of-the-seat action, unpredictable drama, and world-class athleticism to primetime television every Friday night for 52 weeks a year. No off-season here. The WWE is joining Fox to create the greatest lineup in television, 
with Thursday Night Football, Friday Night SmackDown, Big Noon Saturday, and of course, Fox NFL Sunday. So here we are, October 4th, the greatest night in the history of superstars the WWE has ever seen. Don't miss the premiere of Friday Night SmackDown on October 4th at 7.30 Eastern, only on Fox. I can't believe they didn't invite me because, you know, I was the first voice heard ever on SmackDown. Lauder and I were the first two broadcasters. We were the original team. Uh, and I'm being facetious, but having been in LA a couple of weeks ago for the Oklahoma UCLA game, and spending the weekend with my good friend Jacob Weldman, who's the senior VP of Fox Sports, uh, they, they meaning Fox, has done an amazing job of creating awareness uh, on their uh, securing the brand of SmackDown and the w, and the partnership with WWE. So uh, they've done it. They're a magnificent partner, no doubt about that. So I wish everybody there the best of luck. You know, I don't look at this thing like it's us against them or them against us. It's a wrestling show. We have a wrestling show at AEW. There are other companies that have wrestling shows. So I don't understand why, what the this Wednesday Night War thing and everybody's got, especially when it comes to picking a side. I understand the terminology of Wednesday Night War because people are hanging on the coattails of the Monday Night Wars. I get that. Uh, but it certainly doesn't necessitate we wrestling fans to uh, single out one brand as our do-all, go-to, end-all, be-all, and, and, and take a crap on the other wrestling products. I think that's stupid. I think it's nearsighted and somewhat ignorant. Uh, goofier and a pet coon, if you will. So uh, let's support all the business. And as all the business grows, we all will benefit from it. It's that simple to me. Yeah. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, as a wrestling fan or as someone who works in the business, if you're one of the boys, it's good for there to be competition. And competition is heating up. I'm sure by now, you know, everybody has seen uh, the debut of AEW on TNT. And it'll be curious where we go from here. And that's really what this show is about is taking a look at the history of professional wrestling and man, the Monday night war once upon a time was the hottest thing in wrestling. And by the fall of 97, WCW had a firm grasp on the lead. And that's what we're going to be talking about today in your house, bad blood going down October 5th, 1997 from the keel center in St. Louis. So, uh, as you're listening to this, the anniversary is just a couple of days away. It's an interesting show because there's so much going on behind the scenes. So we're going to tackle it a few different ways, but if you actually sat down and watched the show this week in preparation of us talking about it, I'd be curious to see what you thought of the show. The readers of the wrestling observer went ahead and placed their votes. 52% gave the show a thumbs up. 16% gave the show a thumbs down and 31% gave the show a thumbs in the middle. You watched this uh, show. For the first time in a long time, overall, would you have given this show thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle? I, I think it was a thumbs up for a lot of reasons, not just that night, because I thought the show was very strong and the main event delivered in, uh, infinitely just, just, uh, Sean Michaels and undertaker had a classic, uh, and they had the first hell in the cell match that counts. So there's so many firsts here. We saw the. DX start percolating and becoming an, an, uh, an entity and an important entity. Uh, we saw the transition and how Stone Cold's, uh, neck injury at the hands of Owen Hart, how that affected and how that presentation was, how it affected the WWE. 
because uh, in August, just you know, a couple months before, Steve, it didn't look good for Austin. So there's a lot of things at play here, and everything that I just mentioned at play, in addition to bad blood, it was the last uh, the, the talent. It was Vince McMahon's last gig as a broadcaster on that show. Uh, he worked with Lawler and I, or we worked with him, however you want to term it. But then Vince soon thereafter would become Mr. McMahon, and uh, Lawler and I would be handling the, the Raw show. And, and I'm happy for Jerry. Jerry's gone back on Raw, and he's got something to do on Monday nights, and I'm uh, sure he's excited about that opportunity. So, uh, but in, in any event, uh, I digress. I, I, it's the, this, this event, Bad Blood 97, had so much history involved in it that Conrad and I will talk about here today. I think you'll find this show to be very interesting and very eye-opening in some, re, in some uh, respects. Well, what's, what is eye-opening, if you've never seen it, is the main event. The very first Hell in a Cell, as you referenced, Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker was certainly uh, one of the best matches of the year. In 97, had a lot of great matches, with WrestleMania 13 being Bret Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin. And, of course, this same month on the other channel, Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero were going to tear it up at Halloween Havoc. So lots of fun wrestling happening in 97, and fans knew it. This show was a sellout. 21,151 fans. 17,400 of those had paid a gate of 212 grand plus another 101,000 in merch sales. So this would have been the second largest crowd in the long and storied history of St. Louis wrestling, uh, trailing the famous Strangler Lewis, Jim Lundo stadium match in 34 that drew 35,000, but that's, uh, feels like, uh, another lifetime. And it literally is. So this is quite the record for the WWF. You guys had been sort of limping along. We talked about when we covered mind games and we talked about that raw at MSG, that's where Vince would meet with Brett and tell him he couldn't afford his contract. So it's gotta be pretty encouraging when the next month you run a big wrestling town like St. Louis and you got 21,000 fans on hand. That's a big house in any era. Absolutely. And it showed that some of our, uh, talents that we are, we're counting on. Uh, that we were counting on, uh, would, uh, continue to develop and understand the art of getting over, understand the art of drawing money and becoming stars. And as we talk, as we progress in this podcast today, uh, a lot of those guys will be singled out, but, and they have gone on to become hall of fame guys, but bad blood was a key event in that regard. Uh, great competition with WCW, uh, and, you know, we, we just had to continue to steer the course. Sometimes when you make your play, it's like a football team saying, we're going to, we're going to run a different offense or changing offenses here. And we're going to try to do something a little bit different, uh, to better, to better parlay, uh, and suit our talents and their personalities. And so the attitude era started the evol- evolution of that, uh, really started around this time, I think. And uh, bad blood was just a almost an infomercial for that because there's a lot of attitudinal things, uh, that were going on. But again, uh, anytime you have a show that has a, uh, a wonderfully produced executed main event, that becomes the last thing you remember. Uh, anybody that watched bad blood in preparation of the show, you may forget some of those tag matches early in the night that didn't have a story behind them or just weren't red hot. Everything can't be red hot. Everything doesn't need to be red hot, quite frankly. And so all of a sudden 
those things that were important to be the main events that needed to be hot were, and, and then some over delivered, including, uh, HBK and taker. It's interesting to see how the crowd is responding to what you guys are, are serving up. You know, we're coming off the ground zero pay-per-view, which went down in September, also Shawn Michaels and the undertaker, but we don't have a, a clean in the middle finish. So we're going to a cage match here. Pretty old school. I mentioned this though, because that same match on top, I uh, couldn't even sell out a 6,000 seat arena. Uh, it drew 4,963 paid. Uh, I don't know why, but that's just really intriguing to me that just one month later, the, either the product is much hotter or the town is much hotter. How do you justify in your mind's eye as a performer or as someone who's worked in the office, how one town can be so hot and the other just dead? Well, you got to go back and look at the history of the town and, and how the, if the town is uh, sucking hind teat, it may be because the shows preceding this one, uh, were not good. Uh, there could have been some no shows could have been a lot of things could have been weather issues, a lot of things. Bottom line normally is that it's just simply not what we didn't provide what the fans wanted to see, uh, with enough enthusiasm to sell out the building. I'm thinking that that, uh, uh that 6,000 seater was probably booked, a, uh, a year in advance probably was, uh, with all the planning that Ed Cohen and his staff used to do. So I'm thinking that perhaps it was simply a matter of, uh, you know, just, uh, it, it was already booked. We weren't that hot at that time. 6,000 seats seemed to be appropriate for where we were in our evolution of our new talents. And so it made, it made, when it was booked, it probably made a lot of sense. As things started getting hotter and, and ta- which all means this talent started getting over, you know, undertaker got a, a almost got a, a whole new, uh, he got resurrected, so to speak, no pun intended there. Uh, Austin's evolution is well-documented. Nobody before or since has been like Austin. We had him, you know, young and, and all, you know, he was, I think when Steve got hurt, he was 32. Uh, so we, we just. And DX, that was a big thing. Getting Shawn Michaels back in the hunt. Uh, and that was a big deal and getting him motivated and getting him rolling. Cause when Sean had the mindset to be great, he was as great as anybody that's ever wrestled. So, and he could also be a giant pain in the ass, uh, that's which I'm sure he would, uh, agree. And he, and he has talked about this, his attitude changed a lot. And so, but that's the whole deal, man. We just, sometimes those deals are made a year in advance or whatever. And it could have been a favor that Ed had to, Ed had to pay back a favor to, uh, the building group. And so to, to run that event and to run it in your house and book it a year in advance might've seemed like a logical thing to do at that point in time. But little did we know the card a year in advance was going to be the first ever hell in a cell match because nobody knew what hell in a cell even was. We had never had one. So there could be a lot of reasons, but, but I'm with you, Conrad, it, just on the surface without feeling the onion back a little bit. It, it is a little suspect why we hit such a small building, but there's, there's all kinds of stories behind that deal. I can promise you if we had thought that we we're going to sell 21,000 seats, <laughs> then, uh, you know, you're going to jump on that. Cause that's a, that's over half a million dollar gate. Uh, and so just on the gate alone, talent's really making, you know, uh, five figure payoffs easily. Well, let's talk about what's going on with Stone cold. Um, he goes to see Dr. Joseph Torg in Philadelphia. And he is a, 
a neck specialist that we've probably mentioned here on the show before. He's uh, he's still injured from the SummerSlam injury. I think we've covered that at this point. Um, and, and the prognosis is he's going to be out for a minimum of two months. And it's written in the Observer. Among other injuries, Austin, 32, suffered a bruise of the spine along with his fairly significant neck problems that were a combination of both the recent jar and the cumulative effect of the wear and tear over his wrestling career. So you guys are obviously monitoring this closely. When you hear that, that Steve is out for two months at the beginning of September. So you're thinking, all right, we'll have him back, you know, game day, ready for action early November. He'll be back for survivor series. Were you getting conflicting reports or how confident were you that he'd be able to come back from this? Well, uh, we were hopeful obviously, because we knew that we had stumbled on uh, to the, to the hottest thing that we'd had in years, maybe for in ever, uh, arguably. There was no guarantee Conrad that he was coming back. The diagnosis was if he heals as we think he can, and he might, then if those stipulations are in place, you might get him back in a couple of three months, but it had a lot of things had to happen and get in play before, uh, that was, uh, that was possible. And I know that, uh, uh, you know, he, he start with football and things like that, but, uh, we didn't, we weren't realize the, the stenosis, the narrowing of the spinal cord. Uh, so there was no guarantee when he was coming back and you can't book him. You can't go out your, when I was booking the house shows, uh, at, at that time. And I was, uh, I couldn't go down to, to my booking and go, okay, I'll, I'll do three months here. Then I'll book Steven his card in three months because it would have been false advertising because we weren't sure that he was going to come back during that time frame or ever. So it was very, uh, touch and go very, very tenuous, uh, nerve wracking to say the least that, you know, you want to get your guy back. That's you're planning on giving a bunch of carries to. So it was, uh, it's challenging to say the least every day we got updates. I made more, more than one trip to San Antonio from Stanford to go check on him. Uh, he saw a great doctor there named Lloyd Youngblood. I believe that's one of the fellow's name He's great. And here's the thing. He was local. He's a neck expert and he was local for Steve and Steve trusted the guy. And that really meant the world. He found a doctor that he really trusted and he could be in his comfort zone at home in San Antonio, uh, to probably got that taken care of. So no guarantee, man, there's no guarantee at all. That's, uh, it was very, uh, hand, hand ringing, you know, we weren't sure. And so every day I would be the one that phone with Steve or Deborah, his wife at the time and, and make sure that, uh, what's going on. How's he feeling? How are you feeling today? You got the tingling or this, that, and the other. And he was going through a, a gambit of emotions. You know, Steve's a very emotional guy. And that's one of the things that has made him great in the things he does. He's got, he's very, very passionate. And, uh, so he, he was, he was in a peaks and valleys Conrad on his moves because he didn't know either. He didn't know if his career and he was making a lot of money. Hey, just on that house of 500 something grand, just on the house, uh, he had made approximately $25,000 that night. Well, By, this, this house is uh 212 grand here for bad. Oh, I, I know, but I'm talking about the, 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 uh, bad blood house is a half a million dollars, right? No, bad blood was two twelve. Was it really? Yeah. I'll be down. Okay. Well, 
So he made over, he'd have made over 10 grand on the house alone, 5% of the net gross. And then he got the pay-per-view money. So right. point being is that he had never made that kind of money in his whole entire life. And it'd been, it'd been seven years starving in Memphis, uh, working, you know, in Dallas, which is, you know, uh, dysfunctional world. So he finally got to where he wanted to be with that one stop off in ECW and here we, we, we hire him. And then, you know, he was very, he was very moody, very emotional that his dream was over. And all I could ever do was just continue to encourage him that your dream isn't over. It's not over until the doctor tells you it's over. And he hasn't said that. So give mother nature a chance to heal your big ass. And then let's see what happens. You, uh, you mentioned a minute ago that, you know, you would call the house and check in with him and I'm sure timeline just runs together, but at this time, Deborah was still married to Steve. And I think Steve was married to Jeannie Clark. Um, what was, what was that dynamic like in late 97? I mean, we know that, you know, just reading the tea leaves that Jeannie and and Steve are going to get divorced in 99. Does him being Mm. home this time add added pressure because Rick has talked about on the old Rick Flair show that. He didn't know how to be home after years and years of being on the road all the time. When he's actually home after his retirement, he didn't know how to be home. He just, that wasn't something that that he had ever experienced in any of his relationships before, because he was always gone. Uh, first of all, I apologize for getting those two. So the marriage is uh, confused. Uh, well, here's the thing. Steve was facing the heartbreak of not being able to get back in the ring and continue this amazing run that he just started with just getting under, just getting released and, and, uh, rolling. And he was living in a bad marriage. So him being at home, wasn't good at all. And so I, I messed up. He had his surgery with young blood later on. Uh, but you know, he, he wasn't in a good spot. He wasn't in a good space right there. And that's why I think that, you know, calling him on a regular basis. It sent him little notes or whatever, uh, helped him. It let him know that we were still thinking about him. You know, I'd encourage Vince to call him every now and then when he, when he, what he could. And so, uh, but it wasn't a good environment for Steve. It wasn't the ideal healing environment with his career in jeopardy and his marriage in jeopardy. It wasn't a great place to be for him. Well, in the, uh, WWF ring is where he really wants to be. And you guys have got to find a way to. Keep some attention on him, keep him in front of the audience, keep him hot, but you've got to be creative because he can't wrestle. And unfortunately he's got a lot of hardware. He's one half of the tag team champs and he's the intercontinental champ. We know at ground zero, they're going to crown new tag team champions and unbelievable, uh, to say it's the headbangers who wind up winning, which we've talked about before. And, um, the stunner on these, uh, authority figures is, is what we're going with. Uh, during this time, you catch a stunner, Sergeant Slaughter catches a stunner and famously at the Madison square garden raw, Vince would take the world's worst stunner. <laughs> um, who comes up with the idea of him rebelling against, you know, the authority figures and just issuing stunner since he can't wrestle because this is <clears throat> something that in hindsight. Hey man, let me give you a little life hack just in time for mother's day and father's day. I'm talking about paintyourlife.com. That's the place where you can get a gift that mom or dad will never forget real quick. Do you remember what you got mom or dad last year for mother's day or father's day? 
Well, here's how you give a gift that they'll never forget. You find something that's meaningful, something that's personal. Maybe we're talking about their mom or dad who's no longer here. Maybe it's about a long lost relative. Maybe it's about their favorite pet who's no longer with us. Maybe there was always this dream that mom and dad were going to vacation to some exotic tropical island, but they never quite made it there. Well, all of those dreams can become reality at paintyourlife.com. You simply upload those photos. You can even use a photo right out of your phone. They can even help you combine photos to create one unique memory. You'll pick the artist. You'll even pick the medium. Hey, do you want an oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even pick the frame. The whole process is less than five minutes to get started. You can get it in as little as two weeks, but along the way you work hand in hand to ensure that the artist is nailing it. They're getting exactly what you wanted and you're going to get that reaction you wanted from mom or dad. I'm telling you, this has been a home run for me. I've used it for my mom, for my dad, for my father-in-law, for my cousin, for my wife. It's great for any occasion, but with mother's day and father's day right around the corner, how do we show the people who gave us everything that we really care? I don't think you can beat a meaningful gift like this from paintyourlife.com. And if you're looking to give the best and most meaningful gift you've ever given, paintyourlife.com can hook you up and there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. You can get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text R-O-S-S to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. If he wasn't hurt, I don't know that this would have worked as well. This, This probably helped him get over just as well or as fast as anything he could have done in the ring would have. People love to see the stunner delivered. We've seen that lately. Uh, when he goes back to raw a few weeks ago, Steve, I'm talking about, <clears throat> pardon me. He was the biggest star on the card. That includes all the guys that they're paying massive money to right now today, uh, to be main eventers and be, and, and sell tickets. Nobody in the current WWE roster is as over even today as Austin is today. And on that occasion back in those days, you know, in the, in that era, uh, he was, he was, he was Hogan like in his evolution. There was just something there that every time you saw Austin in person, you, uh, were impressed and it was a memorable moment without a question. Uh, so he, Steve just, we did what we could do with him. The thing about him not being able to wrestle. The, the, the real deal was he's not, he wasn't able to take bumps right at that point in time, <clears throat> but he could then sure deliver a stunner because the stunner, <clears throat> he, he, uh, he, he landed on his ass and he could control that pressure. He could control the, the impetus of it. And people came to see the stunner just like they did last time he was on television. So, uh, it was, a it was daunting. 
But the one thing that they loved more than anything other than him drinking beer was the stunner. And he could do both those things under his current medical situation. He could drink beer and he could stun people and he could talk. So, uh, it was, we did the only thing that made sense that was within the confines of being safe for him. And while all, all the while still entertaining the audience, because they got to see what they wanted to see. The September 8th observer would report that Mark Henry was headed to Calgary to train under Bret Hart and Leo Burke quote, WWF is trying one last prayer to see if they'll ever get anything out of their multi-million guarantee contract that gave Henry before the Olympics. Whose idea is it to, uh, send him North? Well, I think that, uh, I was involved in that and I think there are others in the, in the administration that were involved in it. Vince signed off on it. I want to say, if I'm not mistaken, Conrad, that Bret Hart had, had, uh, ample amount to do with this decision because Brett was, had been trained by at, at, at certain points had had uh, influence from Leo Burke and Leo was a Canadian, uh, wrestler, very sound fundamentally, uh, had a lot of respect from the guys because of his ability to coach and teach and refine one's game. And Mark needed, uh, essentially, uh, some one-on-one tutoring and coaching him up. Mark was always very good at being coached up, uh, uh, more often than not. Once he got a little bit of seasoning and once he got some experience within the locker room, uh, and then he was, he was very coachable. He, uh, Mark's also a smart guy. He knew that, you know, uh, some were running out of patience with him and administratively, I think Vince is one of those guys. I, uh, you know, here's the thing, man, you get a 400 pound guy that could dunk a basketball. That's this, this regarded as legitimately the strongest man in the world. I just believe in the old promoters deal that you got to try everything humanly possible to get him up to speed so he can contribute. That's the potential that he had. At least that was my thought. What, and, uh, what was Vince frustrated at? You know, I, I his lack of progression. He just wasn't, he wasn't developing as quickly as we had hoped. Uh, he was not, he wasn't smooth and, uh, you know, uh, it wasn't a, a tight fit for him as far as the tightness of his match. Uh, you know, sometimes Mark tried to do too much and we didn't need him to do those things. He just needed to be the strongest man in the world and use his strength as his, as his ticket to get him into the dance and then continue to evolve what she did. So, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we didn't, uh, we didn't wash our hands of Mark and that we didn't, you know, release him, uh, and the multi-million dollar deal, <clears throat> uh, I guess it is multi-million. He's making about 200 grand a year something like that. 10 years, 2 million, but it was like he got paid, you know, NFL money, right? He was, he got good money, Conrad, but the money he was getting paid, uh, was not, uh, he was making about four grand a week. Something like that. So it wasn't killing the house. It wasn't killing the McMahon's retirement plan, obviously. So maybe that's a little bit overspoken. I'm not sure, but he just wasn't evolving and developing. So that meant to me that for whatever reason, the distractions in some of those camps, either with, with his peers, the Mark very competitive guy. So when you see your guys racing by you and getting better and better in the ring, uh, it can affect you in a lot of different ways. So. 
we just felt like Mark needed some more individual attention. He needed to get away from, he would change his environment. But that was my thought, you know, get him out of this. What we're doing isn't working. And we think that this guy can make it to be big, a big timer. If we can just get him over the hump fundamentally. So that needed to be in our opinion, a change of attitude or, and, and a change of, uh, uh, surroundings. And so we did that. And I think Leo Burke helped Mark Henry a great deal. I'm sure Mark would have, would have agreed to that. Well, let's talk about, uh, something that you guys were doing on the house shows that we never saw on TV. You start to announce, uh, for like the dark matches after all, for instance, the one at MSG in late September, Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels versus the undertaker in a triangle match. It's curious to me. These are the biggest three stars in the company, especially with Steve sidelined. That was never a pay-per-view and it feels like there would have been a great opportunity. Of course, we know Brett's not long for this world. He's going to be out of here in about another month, but what could have been man, those three at the top of their game in a three-way that had money all over it. Yeah, it sure did. But this did come up. Timing is everything. Uh, and it just wasn't the right place at the right time. There's no doubt. Hey, look, I would not have booked that main event in the Madison square garden. If I didn't think it was going to draw, obviously. Cause the garden is Vince's at that time was Vince's pride and joy. Uh, and you know, it's a family tradition of the WWF, WWE and the garden. So, uh, that was the deal there. Just, it was a big card. Uh, it was a match I thought would help draw and it did. Why wouldn't it? And I, I don't remember what the house was that night all those years ago, but I'm sure that that big show in the garden was a, did, did very well, uh, at the gate. No doubt about that. We just covered it recently. Uh, if you want to check it out on both, uh, Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff's podcast. So if you want to know more about that MSG raw, we've got plenty there for you. Meltzer would have an interesting note. You know, Meltzer gets it right. Most of the time. Here's one where maybe he missed. Uh, the idea of having Michaels rude and Helmsley as the new click is already out the window. Although they may put Michaels in with Helmsley as they're trying to find a way to elevate Helmsley to the next level. How much of, of the pairing with D of DX, Sean Michaels and Hunter Hearst Helmsley was because that's what Sean wanted versus it's what the office thought would help get Helmsley over. Well, we thought that, uh, putting rude in that group because of his name identity and his background, the track record, et cetera, et cetera, uh, was, uh, a, 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 on paper, a viable idea. Uh, but the thing is that Sean and Hunter both had their own ideas as to what their faction should resemble, represent and be positioned as. So, uh, and I, I noticed this years ago when I worked for cowboy bill Watts, he'd bring a guy into a territory, a heel, let's say normally a big heel because Watts is a 300 pound baby face. And, uh, he would consult with that heel about the best ways that the heel has been uh, utilized to get over. And so the, the, the guys that watch bring in all these top guys, uh, had a hand in their own program, but the, what we're going to do this week, we'll do this. Oh, we're going to have a six week program. We're going to have a program that's going to run all summer. And so then they would collaborate on those efforts. I don't see anything really that much different in this deal. Uh, the last thing you want is for something that has that much potential, uh, to be not, uh, to be forced. And, uh, it doesn't do the talent any good. So, uh, they Hunter and Sean felt like they had the right formula. They did by the way. And, uh, so we went with it. So 
and rude at the end of the day, just didn't fit in there where you would see at TV, you'd see rude off three of these guys at television. They say, well, you'd see Sean and Hunter together doing something, maybe at catering or hanging around, talking to somebody. Then rude was felt like the lone wolf. He did, he didn't really fit into their group, uh, in, in that respect. So I think that was kind of where that went. It was a good idea on paper, Conrad. It just wasn't practical as it relates to these talents who wanted, uh, who had their own ideas of what they wanted to do. I can't wait to talk about what Shawn Michaels did on raw. We'll get there in just a minute, but the day after ground zero Sergeant slaughter comes out to open up the Monday night raw and strip Steve Austin of the intercontinental title. And then announces a new tournament to crown a new intercontinental champion. Of course, this is the opportunity where Steve, uh, sees to stun Sergeant slaughter. So Sergeant slaughter becomes an authority figure as the commissioner to catch a stunner. And the day after that, they do another set of raw tapings. And this is one of the more famous raw incidents and stories of the year. It's September 9th, Muncie, Indiana. There's about 9,000 fans in the crowd, lots of, uh, physicality, but what people remember the most is that this is a show where neither Vince McMahon or the undertaker are here. And the undertaker is going to appear to retort uh, whatever promo that Sean is going to cut in ring, but Undertaker will just be appearing in a pre-taped segment on the Tron and Sean takes it upon himself since he knows it's not live to ruin this, uh, promo as much as he can. He comes out in his underwear, which he has stuffed now with uh, a sock or something. And he's going to jump up and down crotch shopping directly into JR's face. So they can't shoot around this thing. He stuffed his pants with. And then he starts to back talk and go off script and call out the undertaker and say that he's a chicken. If he won't come out and fight him now, knowing full well, the undertaker is not there in the building. So when word gets back to undertaker that he's calling him out and embarrassing him in front of the crowd, he doesn't like that. And supposedly, uh, when Vince hears what Sean has done here in the, in the ring with this promo, he's not happy either. You were there, uh, holding the microphone as he's thrusting and gyrating in your general direction. Did you have a, a, a sense that something is going to be difficult today? He's, he's extra cantankerous since Vince isn't here. When did you know, well, this is off the rails. Well, the entire afternoon, uh, let's put, let's put it this way. When, when Vince is gone and Vince wasn't there, the, the inmates really, uh, tried to run the asylum the inmate, or I should say the inmate, uh, Sean took advantage of the fact that Vince was absent and the fact that Taker wasn't there. It was very unprofessional, uncalled for. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't enjoy conducting an interview with a kid that I've seen start his career who I did and still do have great respect for, but he, he challenged that respect by coming out there with his, uh, you know, his sock uh, routine. And I think it, it, it seemed to me like he was wearing like these, uh, biker shorts, or I don't know what you exactly call it. I think they're biker shorts or they look like a football pants, short cut off type thing. Like boxer briefs. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. And so then he, he stuffed them and, uh, very obnoxiously, very, very, uh, you know, obviously, 
so it wasn't, it wasn't fun. It didn't help the business any, it, it just, it was for Sean to entertain some of his buddies. show the other guys that I'm not a stooge. I'm not, I don't play well with others. Uh, I'm so goddamn good at what I do. They're not going to do anything to me anyway, type deal. This was as Sean was, he wasn't burnt out yet, but the edges were being, were, were somewhat charred. Uh, and he had, he was having some issues there just the day to day seemed to me like, so, uh, it was not good, man. I don't know. He, Vince is pissed off. And I think Vince is pissed off more because Sean knew better. Sean is still does still WWE's using him wonderfully in NXT, uh, about doing his, uh, you know, uh, coaching and a lot of those kids say, you know, Sean's their guy, he's their mentor. And so he always had great knowledge and instincts and aptitude for pro wrestling. But on that night, he just went completely in business for himself, was very selfish, very unprofessional, and it was very uncalled for. So, uh, and I'm, th- that was a, not a good night at the office, no doubt. So I don't know why that's so fascinating to me, but it is somewhere along here too. You guys allow, uh, some of your talent to appear on Terry Funk's WrestleFest, which is Terry Funk's retirement <laughs> and yeah. Amarillo on September 11th. <laughs> Uh, this yields some interesting matches too. mankind versus Sabu. So you've got a WWF performer against an ECW performer. And of course, in the main event, Bret Hart and Terry Funk, I don't know that we'll ever talk about Terry Funk's WrestleFest. What do you remember about this show? That we are very, uh, happy to cooperate. You know, Terry was a lifer in the business as he still is. God bless him. Um, uh, and, uh, one of my all time favorites without a doubt. Uh, whether he be a heel or baby face or a tag guy or broadcasting or whatever, I've been around him and all those in- incarnations. And he's just, he's a treasure, quite frankly. Uh, so he was, hey, look, we all, did anybody buy into this? Is going to be Terry's one and only retirement match? Not really. Come on. But he was home, family, friends. Home base, home base of the old territory that his dad uh, ran. So why not help him out? What's it going to hurt us? We were running Amarillo. It wasn't a weekly town for us, for God's sake. So it's just helping somebody. So, and then Mick, uh, really wanted to work the show and, uh, Brett really wanted to work the show, uh, and pay back old favors and out of respect, uh, one of their heroes. So uh, I'm the last guy that's going to say, no, you can't, I, I got to approve by Vince, uh, and you know, the only thing we worried about is the same as you worry about every night. You just hope nobody gets hurt. Uh, so it'd make us all look bad if, they, if somebody got hurt on, uh, some in somebody else's, uh, piece of ground. So, but it was a, it was a simple yes. And, uh, I think it drew well and made Terry happy. And, and so it was the right thing to do. And guys like Foley and Brett stepping up to showed you their integrity and their character and respect for the overall business, but specifically for Terry Funk. Let's talk about in your house, or I'm sorry, one night only rather. It was a UK only pay-per-view September 20th. The undercard is what it is. There's lots of interesting stuff on here though, like Tiger Ali Singh and Leaf Cassidy, but the main event is what I really want to talk about. The British bulldog comes in as the European champion and, um, that's been built locally and promoted locally that bulldog is dedicating this match to his sister who is, uh, in a bad place with cancer and, and she was sitting at ringside and that, by the way, and at the end of the night, Shawn Michaels gets his hand raised and trash comes raining in. 
Uh, a lot of people speculating how in the world this happened, uh, including the theory that Shawn Michaels just goes to Vince and, um, talks him into letting him go over and win the title, promising to drop it back to the bulldog. And of course that rematch never happens. What do you remember about this one night only show? And I don't know the, the, the whole dynamic of the sister with cancer makes you feel like it's a slam dunk win for the good guy and our hero. And it doesn't go that way. Uh, I just remember that there were a lot of, uh, seemed like endless closed door meetings with, uh, Vince and whomever, <clears throat> pardon me on that day. Uh, and it was, there's only one, there's only one, the one great thing about the WWE over the years. And one of the great things that I discovered when I got there, especially coming off a WCW run that I had that had a booking committee with a lot, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. There's one cook in the kitchen in WWE, Vince McMahon. And so Sean knew as everybody else knew, if you want something major changed, it's got to go through the, go through the big Irishman. And, uh, so there were several caucuses that day. Cause Vince, first of all, had to be convinced it was the right thing to do because the table was set perfectly for the baby face to go over in his home country with his family and his dying sister at ringside. It, it was a classic story. And, uh, but the other side of that issue, if a heel i.e. Shawn Michaels were to go over the local hero, the heel's going to leave there with a great deal of heat, that angst and that anger, that venom is going to translate to television so that when Sean got back stateside, he brought that heat with him as a, cause he, he, he loved being that cocky, arrogant, overbearing heel. And he played that role very, very well and very organically. So I just remember a lot of, a lot of meetings. The, the thing about, uh, commentary for me was that I never, I've never, I said this before. It's not important for me to know the finish. Uh, I don't even, if I don't know the finish. I'm fine because I look at it like I'm calling a ball game. And if you're calling a football game, Conrad, as you well know, we don't know who's going to win. Right. You call it, you call what you see. You, you add a narrative based on what you see and feel, uh, on your, on your monitor. And so, uh, that's kind of how we looked at it. So it didn't affect me as a, as a broadcaster, but I know that it affected some of the other guys who were not on Sean's Christmas card list or Sean wasn't on their Christmas card list. Uh, we're not happy. Uh, and what the hell happened? You know, I thought they thought bulldog cause a lot of the boys had empathy for bulldog and his, his situation. Uh, even though Davey had his, his, his enemies too, cause all the, you know, the ribs and the first one thing and another that some guys took personally. So it was a very unique emotional day in that regard. And, and you're right though, that the match ended with amazing heat. So maybe Sean's politicking to get it changed was the right thing to do after all. Uh, but I, I never understood why bulldog did not get a rematch because to me, it seemed like a no brainer to book it, uh, a, a rematch, uh, based on what happened in, in England. So two days after this show is where the whole Bret Hart, Vince McMahon meeting happens at Madison square garden, $258,000 gate there. 10,672 fans, another 97,000 in merch, but Brett's told, Hey, can't afford our contract. Well, there are lots of backs backstage and private office meetings and discussions about what do we do with Brett? 
and then you guys just landed on we can't afford to keep him when do you remember hearing that vince is going to meet with brett and have this conversation when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Well, I knew Vince was going to meet with Brett before he left Stanford. Uh, we discussed it and you know, it was one of those deals where he felt, and he was right. That he being Vince, it was his call. This is his meeting. It didn't need me. This is his meeting between he and Brett. And when you tell a guy, you're going to sign into a 20 year contract, which essentially, uh, guarantees their future financially for, for Brett and his family. And then to say, okay, I, I, I can't do that now. It, mathematically, it just won't work out. We're having cash flow problems and we were, uh, so that was kind of the, the scenario there, Conrad. It was, it was a matter of just doing the math and it didn't, it didn't work. So you say, well, why did he offer it to him in the first place? Because in the first place, Vince felt like we could afford it, that things are going to change. The cash flow is going to be, uh, relieved a little bit. It didn't happen right away. So, uh, but I don't think most of the boys <clears throat> had any awareness of the exact terms of Brett's deal, nor did they know that, uh, it wasn't a, an agenda posted on the, on the board. Like you'd have your, your card. It didn't say Vince Brett meeting, you know, and nothing. So it kind of was off the radar there a little bit. And, you know, Vince told some people, inner circle people, uh, you know, I'm sure Bruce and Pat and myself, and we all knew things was how that was going down. And didn't know how he was going to handle it because it, it really is tough because it didn't seem like he'd offered that contract, a 20 year deal that much, uh, that, that, that far in a few, uh, in advance. I mean, it was just right, right. Seemingly it was just right a few days later after the offer was made or the promise was made or what the hell you want to call it, that, uh, we have this rescinding of the offer. So, uh, but it wasn't a public thing It got to become public after the a few days later, people start talking more about those things. And of course, Meltzer finds out Meltzer's, you know, he's Meltzer had a great rapport with a lot of people there. And, and, uh, but I know he, he also had, he, he, he conversed with the, with Brett from, from time to time. So I'm sure he got the, the, you know, he got the exact details of it there. So it just wasn't a public, public knowledge, so to speak, Conrad, but it was, it was a touchy thing that it was a unique area. Here's the thing I'm trying to say is the fact that I had not experienced anything quite like that. A 20 year contract in pro wrestling is essentially ill-advised and, and not popular. It's not normal 20 years and it's physical business. It's not, it, it makes little sense to me, but nonetheless, uh, that's where we were. So, 
it was a tough time for everybody, uh, because the, the common thread comes back. We don't have the capital. We don't have the money and it affected a lot of us. I know it affected me. I got, I think I got my pay cut like 50 grand. So, uh, it, it was, it affected a lot of us in the wrestling side of the business. And Vince's only, con, only promise to me was if you stay with me, I'll let you, I'll, I'll give you a release today. You can leave today. Yeah, or, uh, if you stay with me, I'll make it worth your while over the long haul. I chose the latter. He kept his word and, and, and for me, it all worked out fine, but it was a, it was a lot of edgy hurt feelings, quite frankly, that I didn't know how, I didn't know how to navigate some of those things. First time you had to just kind of play it out and listen and pay attention and give a shit. We should mention that, uh, on screen at this MSG show, there's a lot going on too. I think we've talked about it before. Owen Hart has a restraining order against Steve Austin. So when Steve jumps through the crowd and attacks Owen Hart, of course, he is, uh, surrounded by the police and swarmed and Vince McMahon gets up from the announce desk and makes his way over saying he's going to talk some sense into Steve. And he does his best to explain that the world wrestling federation doesn't want to see him injure himself. And these fans don't want to see him get injured. And right now. Uh, he's got to listen to the doctors and he's got to work within the system. And that of course leads to the stone cold stunner, maybe the one of the worst ever, but certainly the most important one up to this point, the visual of Steve sort of talking smack to all to, to Vince McMahon as he's convalescing on the ground. And then of course he's arrested. And this is before people were arrested on Monday night wrestling every week, big moment. When do you remember this becoming the idea and, and what do you think of it? Because this is the first time you're really acknowledging Vince as the owner. And it's the first time Vince has done something physically like this and you've saved it for a Madison square garden show. It's, it's a big crowd, big, big deal. Uh, well, I, I encourage it. We are going that direction. We're heading that way to where the, the anti-establishment stone cold, Steve Austin was going to be a prominent player based, you know, hopefully with his health, not being a, a, a detriment over the long haul. Uh, I liked it. I liked the idea because, uh, I, but I, I, I liked it because of the stunner, the surprising nature of it. And the fact what Steve did to Vince was so, uh, out of the blue, uh, as I talk about Randy Orton, sometimes out of nowhere, I appreciate those guys are using a lot of my commentary on WWE. Appreciate it. Thanks guys. Uh, but I thought that, uh, it was great for the, for the Austin character. Little did I know how it would affect the McMahon character as, cause I thought Vince would probably, he might just come back and be a, go back to his announced position and, you know, let the rest of us have got stunned. You just kind of move on. But, uh, his idea was in his head of being a villain and make no mistake about it, folks. Uh, all the great heels we had in WWE during that era, we had no heel better, no heel hotter, no heel more significant than Vince McMahon. Mr. McMahon was in that era. He was the, he was the top heel because he matched up perfectly with the top babyface, And so, uh, I, I didn't know the end the end game Conrad. I knew for on the beginning, it's going to be a great move for Austin. But little did I know it also became a great move for Mr. McMahon. Without question, it's going to uh, change the entire company. And you see one of your other 
your signees sort of bloom here on this show. Cactus Jack makes his WWF debut. Of course, at this point, we're already very familiar with mankind. We've started to learn a little bit about dude love, but the guy that you really wanted to sign, the character you really wanted to sign Cactus Jack makes his debut here. How hard of a sell was this to Vince to finally acquiesce to letting this Cactus Jack character on TV? Because clearly he wasn't in love with it. No, not in the beginning it was, but he, uh, uh, Vince fell in love with Mick and his work ethic through the mankind business. I think that the interview that I did with, with Mick, that was really, you know, Mick's story. I just kind of navigated it, uh, was a big deciding factor in Vince starting to believe in Mick Foley, because again, that was not a interview that was scripted. We didn't have lines. Uh, we had a, a general direction, uh, but it was, that's it. So, uh, I, I, Mick was just such a pleasant guy to work with. And he got the blessing of the undertaker, which goes a long way with anybody in that company still does. So, uh, it was a, it was a cool thing. And the fact that Mick had already pulled off a new character in mankind, the fact that dude love was such an entertaining, uh, uh you know, we thought it'd be a one-off it was more than that that the, but the original of all the whole deal was cactus Jack. So, uh, and cactus Jack was the guy that Vince didn't want to hire cause you know, but he let me hire him as I mentioned before, cause I needed to understand and feel how it was to get your heart broken by a talent. You had so much confidence in. So, uh, it wasn't a hard sell at all because here's what it did. It gave, it gave the company another t-shirt to sell. It gave the company potentially three different, uh, uh talents, uh, in, in essence to utilize all in a top main event level role because all those characters that Mick portrayed were main event level guys. So it wasn't a hard sell at all. Quite frankly, it might've been if we had not had the dude love the incarnation and the fact that the mankind new character named mankind didn't, uh, become so successful. Big moment in wrestling history here, for sure. You know, seeing this show happen at Madison square garden, um, somebody who's not a part of this though, is Yokozuna. Um, the observer would report that you guys were having Yoko move to Stanford. Uh, to, he's trying to get his weight under control and he's going to move to Stanford. He's under contract. Bruce says he doesn't remember Yoko ever moving to Stanford. What no. Was, what was the status of Yoko here? in late 97 it's been about a year since we've seen him i think his last on camera was survivor series 96. um well yoko's ongoing weight issues was the culprit here uh wasn't anything else uh you know he didn't he wasn't a druggie uh he had no other substance issues that i'm aware of to this very day it's just the fact that yoko was becoming morbidly obese and unfortunately in that era where, uh, state athletic commissions were still uh, governing, uh, pro wrestling for some odd reason, it's like, uh, they don't govern Broadway or a musical, same deal, same presentation, showbiz. But, uh, at that time they were, and if you were found to be, uh, guilty or found to be defective in one commission. Uh, then you were most of the other commissions followed suit. So therefore, if we were going to have trouble getting Yoko licensed, 
so he could wrestle in these, in these towns. Uh, we needed to fix that because he was such a viable uh, guy and we'd spent so much time and effort in helping him get over. He was just a, he, Yoko was a phenomenon, a guy that was that big that had his timing. And he, he, if you go back and look at his matches, it shows you that if you execute a few things really, really well, then you can get over without having to have a large offensive repertoire because Yoko knew how to work and he knew how to, he knew, understood crowd psychology, but it was, uh, it, this whole thing about Yoko was simply about his, the weight. We were getting ready to lose a star, a main event level star that was very unique that we could take the time and not have to, he didn't have to work every night. We could book him uh, a, a little bit less because his travel issues, him, him, uh, you know, because of his size, but it was all about the weight. And I, I don't think Yoko ever moved to Stanford. I think the deal there was he'd just be, if he did, we'd get him to move, which we didn't try. I don't even remember trying that it would be because Vince could keep an eye on him and Vince kind of being the godfather, you know, so close to all those, those cats, all those, the Samoan group, uh, over the years and so forth, office Sika and so forth, uh, that it was, you know, the right thing to do, but it just wasn't. And he didn't move. And unfortunately, it's like somebody said one time about William, the refrigerator, Perry, you know, he ate himself out of the NFL and, uh, Yoko, God bless his soul, pretty much ate himself out of the WWE. And that was the issue all along was controlling his diet. And, you know, we offered to have surgery, the lap band thing that we did with Paul bear, uh, all kinds of solutions we thought. But he just didn't want to. He didn't want to go there. He th- thought he could lose the weight on his own. Unfortunately, like many of us, he doesn't have. He didn't have the discipline or the knowledge of what to eat, when to eat. You know, I went to. I went to a party one time in Nashville. Taker was living there, and, and Yoko was there. And they were deep frying turkey tails. Uh, and seriously, and so when the turkey tails would float to the top of the hot grease, uh, they were ready to, to be served, ready to eat. And Yoko was eating those big, big old fatty turkey tails, like they were, uh, you know, some sort of little appetizer. But before he ate them, he would make sure he dipped them in mayonnaise. Oh. So, so you got deep fried turkey tails and mayo, and he was eating them some bitches like they were, you know, uh, mini donuts or something. He's just popping them in. Uh, but that he he had no he had no discipline as far as what he ate. And I, and again, I can identify a lot, a lot of us have that situation sometimes. He, and I think sometimes he just didn't know what was killing him. He knew he was eating, but he, the wrong, he's eating the wrong things. And, and the thing about a lot of those guys, I found this out with Vader and with uh, Yoko, for example, they worry about being hungry. And so therefore it affects their diet and they think they got to eat a lot of bad shit to, to stay full. And you don't, uh, but. You know, I, I, was just a sad thing because Yoko is a hall of fame guy was a great champion. He was an attraction. Didn't need to see him every week on television, but he was, uh, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, he's the best time. He has be- the best timing of any super heavyweight that I ever saw bottom line. Let's talk about, uh, what we're doing here behind the scenes internationally. You guys are going to run a show on September 28th and there's going to be some FMW talent there. There's going to be some all Japan pro wrestling talent there. And of course, Ken Shamrock and Vader 
there's like a, uh, I think it's billed as an ultimate fight rules cage match. This is uh, a work shoot. Well, what do you remember about sending talent over here? This is a huge show. It's the Kawasaki baseball stadium. The crowd was announced as being 50,000 fans. The real number is 40,000 fans, whatever huge crowd for 1997. And oddly enough, Shamrock and Vader are in a UFC style cage. Yeah. It, and it worked, you know, and, and it was, it was a work. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a shoot. Uh, hey, look, I Leon, God bless him. The late Leon white, AKA big van Vader was a tough dude. No doubt about it. But to put him, uh, in a environment that it was really shamrock's world would not have been fair. It would not have been a good match. It would not have lasted long. Uh, it would not have been what the fans expected to see. So, uh, it was a controlled environment, but the guys work, they knew the terms of the situation that they had to work stiff, snug, if you will. And they did. So, uh, but the, for us, we had two, our two, two of our guys working with each other. So there's a little bit more managerial control there on what we you're doing, what you can't do, what we don't want you to do. Uh, and, uh, so they're working with each other. And the other thing about that deal, Conrad is you're always looking out for your talent. They can pick up another significant payday. And I'm not going to be the guy that says, well, you can't go because, uh, we just don't want you to, we don't have a good reason. Uh, and so therefore you're not going to make this nice payday. You've been promised. That's just not the way you manage talent. And it's a little bit different ball game. Today's world, probably not that, uh, we, we, that, that might not be that generous, but to then it was, uh, a good payday, uh, and, uh, and an interesting matchup because here's the thing. You always are willing to let some other promoter at times try these things because if that had worked out as well as we hoped, you know, that might've been something we went with on a pay-per-view or something somewhere down the road with Vader and Kenny, but, uh, it was a, a unique attraction strictly for the payday. It wasn't a PR mission to help all these other companies. I don't, I don't believe, I think it was a fact that we're had the chance to generate a great, uh, payoff for our, for our talents, which would help them. What do you remember about around this time? Shamrock taking a power bomb from Vader and maybe suffering a lung injury. He started coughing up blood. Bruce Pritchard would run out very concerned at ringside and they go right to the finish. Uh, it's a referee stoppage Vader screaming for a doctor. Is this all just, uh, theater or is there a real injury underneath? No, I think he was, uh, I think it was messed up. He had a little perforation there in his lung or something. Uh, anytime somebody starts spitting up blood, it's not a, you know, it's, it's serious, obviously. So, uh, this is too, Leon was ungodly strong. He was six, five. So when he got you up in the power bomb, you're dropping from a significant weight or height rather. I'm sorry. And also with all that power, he's 400 pounds. So working snug and, and physical was the way he, Leon did it. And that, that was all born in Japan, uh, over those years. So, uh, and Kenny was Shamrock never bitched or moaned about being hurt. He's tougher than a $2 steak without question, but, uh, it was just the way those two guys worked. They wanted to make sure that nobody sitting at ringside would roll their eyes because the things they were doing would not break an egg. That was not the case with Ken Shamrock or uh, big Van Vader. They broke a lot of eggs. Let's talk about something else that was broken. Owen starts to wear a shirt that says Owen 316 says, I just broke your neck. 
Was there any heat with Austin and, and Owen about the shirt? I know that their relationship was not quite the same post injury. I got to think that what little I know of Steve, he may not have been thrilled with the idea of Owen selling a shirt like this. He wasn't overwhelmed with it. I don't believe, uh, but he, he got past it. Obviously, uh, it reminded me of the, uh, you know, the old t-shirt. I broke Wahoo's leg. Right. Uh, just to play off that, you know, what's, what's old is can be new again. If you present it correctly and give it enough time to, to be dormant for it's re, re, uh, uh, ignited, uh, reinitiated, uh, Steve's relationship with Owen, uh, was severely hampered obviously after that summer slam where Steve got hurt with the, the, uh, pile driver. And it was something that he had talked to Owen about before the match. But Steve went went along with it, even though he didn't fully understand why they were doing the whole Owens applying the whole that particular way. Uh, I I've heard different stories. You know, Owen talked to me a lot about Steve because he knew I'd be in touch with him a lot. Uh, he always asked, and I I have I asked Owen on more than one occasion. Well, when did you when did you talk to him last? Well, I haven't. And I, why not? He said I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I did this. It was an accident and I feel badly about it. So that's what you ought to tell him. You got to make a story up. Just go tell him the truth. I don't think that conversation, I don't know. I don't know if that conversation ever took place. It may, maybe it did in private. I don't know. But, uh, Owen always asked about Steve, but he'd, he'd asked me about him and then he would, and I would encourage him to call, but he, he just didn't do it. Even I said, even if you leave a message and he hears your voice that you're, you're apologizing, that'll help. That'll help without question. But Owen had that great pride. You know, the hearts are so fundamentally sound. You know, Brett tells a story and I believe him that all the years he worked all around the world, he never hurt anybody. That's an amazing accomplishment considering what these guys do for a living. So, uh, and Owen had that same heart being the youngest one of the family. Uh, you know, he had that same pride. And so here's the heart messing up a move. That may, we're not sure yet, that may have either ended or certainly significantly shortened Stone Cold's career. Let's talk a little bit about what TV looks like as we head in here. The September 29th, Monday night, which is our go home edition for this pay per view, Raw does a 2.7, Nitro does a 4. And that was sort of the tale for all of September. On the 8th, it was 2.2 to 4.3. A week later, it was 2.6 to 3.9. A week later, it was 2.4 to 3.7. And you would think here on the, the go home edition, maybe this is going to be more watched than it is. It's up from a 2.4 to a 2.7, but Nitro is also up from a 3.7 to a 4. Nitro just firmly in the lead, man. What's that? Uh, are you feeling, hey, we're selling out big shows. We got good houses, but the ratings aren't there. Are you really focused on what you're doing? You're still frustrated at this point. What's the tone or tenor of the office at the time? It, go compete and don't allow the talents to, to dwell on the fact that we got our ass beat 83 weeks in a row. Uh, just don't do it. Uh, it's, you, we can't affect what they're doing. We can't change what they're doing. We can only focus on our, what we're doing. It's not unlike whatsoever, at least in my opinion, what we're facing now on Wednesday nights where WWE moved night, moved NXT, uh, to be head to head against us or whatever it is. And, 
And that wasn't an accident. That was to make sure that they could retard our growth. Uh, and they could certainly say on their straight face, no, we did it for our own product. We only did it because, you know, well, if that was such a great idea, then why hadn't you done it before? Why did it come up two weeks before, uh, uh, we debut It's to confuse the marketplace It's to divert the attention off a new brand. That's just trying to present pro wrestling. That's all same deal. Uh, on that, on that. So we just kept telling guys to focus on what we do, focus on what the hell we're doing. And, uh, and it'll, it'll take care of itself because like in my situation for just as an example, I would get the ratings. We get the ratings on Tuesdays for Monday night raw and you'd get the ratings. You'd evaluate the minute by minutes. You see who's over, who's drawing, who wasn't peaks, valleys in the show all your little analysis that one could do. But at the end of the day, we got to go do another show and in, in now in six days from now. So, uh, it's like, uh, okay, this may be a baller saying, you know, one can't grieve forever. I think it's an old WC Fields line. One can't grieve forever. We couldn't grieve forever because we got to get to business. We had house shows to run that, that the weekend. We had another TV to do in six days and, a pay, and sometimes a pay-per-view in five days no time to boohoo and no time to focus on anything, but what we can control. And that's what I, that's why I preach to the guys all the time. I always talk about ratings to them. I give them the honest truth, the truth period. Uh, and then I would change the subject to something that was positive. You can't piss on the fact that we're selling, that we're, we're selling a lot of tickets at some of these live events or doing great business. So something's working or they wouldn't be leaving their home and getting their card and dragging their kids to the arena to watch wrestling. Something's working. It's just the fact that our television audience has not found, uh, us in that regard yet on Monday nights. We, they forgot about us. We needed to get some new things going. We need to get some new talent over. And that's what we did. And at the end of the day, uh, they went belly up and, and the WWE is still kicking ass bigger and stronger than they ever have. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the actual show. We're finally here, but before we get to the actual pay-per-view, well, there's some bad news on the free for all. Unfortunately, this is where we learned that Brian Pillman has passed away. He wrestled the night before in St. Paul. And from what we know, passed away in that hotel room after the show. So late that night, early the morning of this show, when did you find out that Pillman was gone late that night. Uh, I think one of the agents called me, it might've been Jack Lanza. Uh, it was shocking, especially with such a weekend that we had planned there in St. Louis, you know, with all the former NWA champions coming back and you know, the big, the first ever hell in a cell match and nobody knew exactly how it was going to be, uh, processed, how it was going to be produced in a new structure. The, you know, the, all the roof on it, the, the big, the exercise, all that stuff. So it became, uh, it, 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 it monopolized our thoughts, at least certainly mine, because I was instrumental in bringing Brian to WCW and to WWE. I considered him a friend. He was an honorary little bastard, but boy, he's talented and I loved him. I, I still miss him a great mind for the business, but that kind of overtook it affected the sizzle of the weekend. 
Because for a lot of us old school guys, going back to St. Louis with a major show is a big deal. It's like going to the garden. You know, St. Louis was the New York City of the Midwest as far as wrestling was concerned. And uh, so it was a big deal there. So I, I heard about the middle of the night. And I was already in St. Louis. And uh, it was sad, man. It was just a, shockingly sad. And, uh, you know, I, I still think about what could I have done along the way to help Brian. And, you know, I, 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 I had him drug tested randomly. Uh, we did all kinds of things in that respect to try to cur- curve the tide there. But, you know, he was, uh, he just had these issues and, and, and God bless him. He, he never got to live his dream. And I think that Humvee accident where he got his ankle fused was the, was one of the major nails in the coffin because he couldn't be as athletic with a fused ankle as he was prior to that, obviously. And that kind of that, that hurt him because his athleticism, meaning Brian's, was one of his calling cards. And it's his facial expressions, his attitude, his promos, but his amazing athleticism was uh, incredible. It's uh, it's a shame that that Brian was no longer with us. I'm sure we'll do a long form Brian Pillman show another time. But I am curious about, you know, how you proceed with this. You know what the card is. You've probably already had your production meeting for the pay per view. Mm-hmm. You know where that's going, but you've also got to let some family know that they've lost their husband or their father or their son or their brother or their sister. What's protocol when you get a call like this in the middle of the night? Uh, I'm not sure it, it you know, it normally was Vince. Vince liked to make the, not like Vince felt obligated to make those calls. He's the head, he's the head coach. Uh, he's owner. So I, I, Vince, like wanted to have that responsibility, felt like he owed it to the families and the talents. Uh, and I agreed, I wholeheartedly agreed, but, uh, we, we followed through, we, we talked about that. Uh, Vince talked to his, to, to, uh, uh, Brian's wife and, uh, you know, Brian's son, little Brian was just a, he's just a twinkle in the eye at that point. Now he's wrestling. Good kid too. Good kid. I'm pulling for him. Uh, but his, uh, we, we did that. And then, then of course, then later on, uh, Vince and I went to the, uh, memorial service in Cincinnati. We flew in and, and then went to the, uh, to the, to the funeral service or the memorial service. And, uh, I just, it was one of the hardest things I've done because they had, it, the casket was open and, uh, it was just heartbreaking. Uh, to see uh, Brian there in that ca- casket, dead, uh, and and really unnecessarily dead, didn't have to die then. Uh, but personal mistakes and personal decisions can can tear up a lot of families. Man, we see it happen every day, and uh, that was one of the situations there with Brian. But going to the to Cincinnati to the funeral was very memorable, and I'm glad that Vince and I both went. I was going to go anyway, but then Vince obviously was wanted to go as well. So we went together on that deal and things like that are what galvanized Vince and myself, even to this very day where we enjoy shooting the shit with each other and, and talking from time to time. Uh, I, I things like that galvanized us. It gave us a chance to talk about things that were not a headlock or can we get this guy over or what's what kind of return? What are you going to book an LAJR type deal? It was life. And, uh, that really, uh, I still think about those type of situations 
with Vince and that helped us establish a relationship that worked out very well for many, many years. Yeah, it's, um, that's a sad story. I'm sure we'll tell the, the full Brian Pillman story. Another time let's try to talk about the pay-per-view. It's going to be a lot to unpack here. Kama Mustafa and D'Lo Brown and Rocky Maivia are going to beat the Legion of Doom in 12 minutes and 20 seconds. This is a three on two handicap match. I guess uh, Ken Shamrock was supposed to be on the LOD side, but he's still uh, out with the lung injury. So he's no longer able to go. And, uh, Vince actually re- referred to, uh, Rocky Maivia as Rocky Johnson once during the match, which is kind of fun. You saw this match for the first time in a long time. what do you think? Not bad. Not bad at all. Uh, again, a lot of new, the heels comma, uh, Godfather and D And of course, uh, the great one, the rock, uh, they're just evolving. They're just getting the, they're just getting to the big dance. Uh, LOD had the challenge for LOD was to try to keep them fresh and, uh, and not overexpose them because they were not every day. They were not, not like the midnight express or rock and roll express or even the young bucks where you could see them on a regular basis and be okay. Uh, they were an attraction tag team that was best utilized if they weren't seen every single week. It kept them fresh because their, their game was a lot, uh, was very consistent. They always did some of the same things, every match. And so overexposing that's not a good thing for them. Uh, but the team of the LOD and Ken Shamrock against those big dudes, uh, was a really, I thought a nice booking quite frankly. Uh, but, uh, and, and we sh- also showed, you know, uh, rock beat Hawk, uh, with this little, uh, you're not, you're an Augie. Uh, I think he changed what he changed the rock bottom. And, uh, so I think, but anyway, uh, good outing. And the one thing that came out of that whole deal kept discovering and rediscovering the rock. Right. And that was where the money was. Tell me about D'Lo. We haven't spent a ton of time talking about D'Lo. What do you think the upside was for D'Lo at this point? Well, D'Lo was a former football player at the University of Maine. He was a Maine black bear, no lineman. Uh, I think it was a D lineman. Uh, so he had athleticism. He's a tough guy. Uh, and D'Lo was a college educated, articulate, and uh, was a was a good member of the of, of the locker room. Uh, I, I always liked D low. I, I gave him that stupid idea or I, I pitched it and they, some other people, Vince liked it and others did. I'm not so sure. I liked it myself after a while, but I wore, he wore the chest protector. To oh, protect cool. old, of course. I like that for, to protect an old injury because he used that frog splash as his finish and us, uh, me thinking, well, it's like having the old loaded boot or slipping a, a foreign object into your mask or something. It gave D'Lo a, an unfair advantage in the sense that nobody else is wearing a chest protector delivering frog splashes. Uh, unfair? Well, he had a doctor's permit. He had a doctor's orders to wear this to protect his lingering injury. Uh, so it was, uh, well, I like D'Lo. He's, D'Lo brought, uh, he, he was stable. He, you, you knew D'Lo was going to go so high. He wasn't going to be the, he wasn't going to headline WrestleMania. But he was a good, he was like, I always say, use a baseball analogy. You know, your guys are hitting the five, six, seven, eight holes. They got to be able to get, they got to be able to put the ball in play. And D'Lo could put the ball in play, even though we knew he would never be, uh, the guy. He was a good complimentary piece. 
in a faction. The faction of, of the nation of domination soon became about developing and spinning off Dwayne Johnson. Uh, and so the other guys would make good support material for that evolution. So Delo did a good job. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we, we had him on our team and he contributed well. He was a reliable, my biggest trait. He was reliable and he's smart. As I said, a college educated guy that played D one foot or played college football at Maine. Uh, so he, he functioned in a group. Uh, and so I, I just thought the Delo was kind of underrated at times because if he had not come along at the same time as rock, uh, people would have noticed him more for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that's the thing I was getting at is I think, uh, you know, obviously no one could ever compare to the success of the rock, but in a weird way, it may have actually hurt D'Lo because he comes in and it's just sort of in the background and slowly, but surely carves out a niche in a spot where that's not easy to do when you've got, you know, former world champ, Ron Simmons, and you've got somebody like the rock and, and you've got to figure out how to get over. He managed to do it. So, uh, d has a place in wrestling, man. Uh, let's talk yeah. about, uh, the next match. This is thrown together. It feels like at the very last minute, it's a mini match. Max Benny and Nova taking on Tarantula and Mosaic. You know, I'm all, I'm all about having, uh, Sonny introduce teams and, and matches. And, and I, and I get why we're going to have her involvement on the show, but the minis who's pushing for the minis here on bad blood. I, I don't know for sure. It seems to me like the minis were, uh, obviously an extension of the entertainment aspect of sports entertainment. Uh, they had gotten on a nice roll in, in Mexico. They're very, very talented guys. Uh, but they're an entertainment act. It's hard, you know, that I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's hard to take it much like it was with women years ago. It was sometimes it was hard to take them as serious competitors because of their gender and, the, and how they presented themselves in that, in that ring. Uh, same thing for the minis. They're always been no more as a comedy act than uh, not. And I think Conrad, they may have been on the, put on the card, uh, as a replacement match, uh, where the, because of the, uh, Brian Pillman, uh, death, I'm not real sure about that, but uh, I don't know that they were booked originally, but if they were, it was to get a five or six minute match of entertaining spots and have some comedy. And there was comedy in that match, you know, that I think one of the many said Lawler's lap or something, you know, it was just a normal. Uh, old territory, midget, uh, small people, vertically challenged, whatever. I apologize for offending anybody, uh, on that deal. So all entertainment and just to add, as this would say, it was a, let me up match all this intensity and the, and the physicality and these, and the, and the guys all trying to get over pushing the envelope a little bit more, a little bit more as evidenced by the big time, uh, power bomb from Bader to Ken Shamrock type things, those type things, uh, they, that was Vince's let me up match and the same spot that the women held a lot of the times before, uh, they got really athletic and good and, and got more recognition and, and proper positioning. Uh, so, uh, uh, here in the last two or three years. So, uh, entertainment Conrad, a, lo- a laugh, you know, go get yourself a hot dog or go hit the can or, or just relax a little bit, chill. Uh, but that's why they were there they, and they were, but they were very good. I mean, they were good at what they did. Victor Quinones was a contact for us and, uh, uh with the, uh, the, uh, 
Mexican office in Mexico city. So that was how that, that's how we got them to come in was through Victor. And they were, they were on a per spot deal. You know, we paid them per appearance. So they didn't have big contracts or long-term contracts, but we, they, they did add to the show. They added some diversity to the entertainment package. And again, you know, we're still looking at an ensemble cast here until certain talents start really separate. Uh, so until then they fit well into the ensemble cast concept. Let's talk about, uh, what's next on the show, because it is something that sort of sticks out in hindsight. It's an advertisement for an Austin 316 shirt. And in this era, this is not uncommon. Whenever you've got a hot piece of merch, you'd run a commercial for it. They don't exactly do that now anymore. I mean, you'll see commercials for merch, but they'll show a whole bunch of different shirts and a whole bunch of products. And then just show you the website at the bottom in this era, you had to call an order. Uh, how did you guys decide what shirts to push when to shoot pro production for these? you know, the process for ramping up when you knew you had a hot item, what can you tell us about merchandising and the way you would, would promote it here in 97? Well, the sale of, of merch at the live events, uh, including some of the TVs, obviously, but the live events were more plentiful. Uh, so you got a good gauge on who's selling what. And at that time, uh, the, there was no, it was, it was not a horse race. Austin was killing it. I remember at one time, uh, uh, one quarter, he got a million dollar check for basically selling t-shirts, uh, royalty check. So it wasn't a hard decision. Who's hot. How do we push it? And it was just a decision to, to go with it and to, uh, separate Steve's shirts from everybody else's because they were selling amazingly well. So that wasn't a hard decision to make, but it was kind of unique. And again, uh, you know, his whole situation was, we can't let the audience forget him. He's doing little, you know, he's doing a stunner here. He's drinking a beer here. He's doing some commentary. He's, doing, he's a timekeeper. He did all kinds of things, but then sh having that shirt there was, uh, I thought really smart events on that regard. And it sold like crazy. They sold, uh, you know, the Austin shirts still sell all these years later. It's amazing how that character and that, that person has connected with the, uh, with the audience. If talents today could simply watch how Austin related to his audience. He found his audience. He identified them and he serviced them. He made sure that they were taken care of. And so guy Austin had matches to what he, he had it was a great listener. So he would find out or hear what the fans were buying. And that's what he would give them. Uh, today's world guys memorize their spots. Oftentimes they go over them endlessly, their match endlessly ad nauseum. Whether it's going to get over or not, come hell or high water, this is what we're going to do because we worked on this all afternoon. And that is total horse shit. It is absolutely no way to uh, structure wrestling is to go out there and do a memorized match, not knowing that it may not be getting over the fans, but this is what you're going to sell them anyway. So uh, Austin was really smart at that. A lot of guys could learn a lot for seeing how he interacts with the crowds, no matter where he was. He found the common denominator and he found the way to embrace them. And, uh, a lot of guys don't pay that much attention. Let's talk about the Godwins. They're going to be out here next and they've got a different look. They're now the heel Godwins. They're the bad pig farmers. So they've changed their look to overalls with no shirts. Uh, and they're going to be in here with the headbangers. Uh, not a great match. 
but the Godwins are going to get their hand raised at the end. This will be their second reign as tag champs. I got to tell you, it, it sort of shocked me the month prior when the Headbangers won the tag titles and Bruce said, you know, Hey, that's the reason we did it because you couldn't call it right but here. A month later, you're taking it off the Headbangers, putting it on the Godwins, the Godwins at this point in October of 97 feel like, uh, I don't know, in their dying days, this is a diminished property from what the Godwins maybe were once before. Where were the Godwins in the pecking order? What was the thinking and changing them to heels? What can you tell us about the Godwins here in late 97? Well, first of all, the, uh, Henry and Phineas were very popular guys in our company because they were loyal. They worked their ass off. They were reliable, big, you know, especially Henry was a big, impressive son of a gun. Uh, and Phineas, very entertaining, uh, big frames, you know, all that good stuff. By the way, Phineas is now, uh, Dennis is a, uh, chef in Florida and heard he's doing very well, by the way. Uh, but they had kind of, I guess you would say they essentially just ran their course. There wasn't a lot more to do. Look, tag team wrestling in that era, much like it is today in, uh, in all the business, except I would say for AEW is kind of looked at as a back burner deal. It's a support mechanism. And, uh, but when you got the best tag team in the world and the young bucks, by the, by many people's estimation, then you got to have a tag team feel or presentation. And we do that in AEW with a big tag team tournament coming up soon. Uh, but I think we run a course with, with, uh, with, uh, those two dudes, uh, on, uh, as baby faces. There's only so much picking and grinning you can do before it's time to change jerseys to get on the other side of the fence. And they're big, rugged guys. They both could take good bumps. They both could feed a comeback, all essential things for a heel to be able to do. And they had good teamwork. Uh, they were believable, big, two big bastards. So, uh, they did well. And then of course we added their uncle Cletus to the group. Uh, I don't know whose idea that was not a bad idea actually. Because Tony Anthony played the role of Uncle Cletus was a probably one of the better hands we had in the whole roster. He drew money. He's a good hand from, from Knoxville, Smoky Mountain area, dirty white boy, good hand. So uh, it was just time to move them and and to make them heels. And I thought they filled that role pretty good in a tepid division, in a very mundane, underpromoted tag team scene on their level of tag teams. They were not given too many breaks in that regard. Uh, but you know, it just, it just oh, on the upper level, if you got a bulldog and an Owen or something like that, yeah, there was some tag team action there, but not on the Godwin level. It just, it didn't run that deep as far as the promotion of the, of the tag. So it was time Conrad, you know, uh, it was, and they knew it was time and, but they're such good guys. They just, they made it work as best they could considering it was a kind of a cold entity, you know, to put the tag titles on the headbangers who, uh, you know, they, like Bruce said, it was a surprise. Nobody saw it coming and it kind of made common sense. Uh, but they, they just, they weren't in a real fertile, uh, fertile ground, but I always had a lot of respect for the Godwin. So they were for me in a, a head of talent relations, you want those guys that are reliable and that are, that will come to work, ready to work. And those two cats uh, were always there, ready to roll up their sleeves and get their jobs done. Well, next up, we see a video package that uh, Vince is going to call the month of Steve Austin. We're sort of recapping what he's been doing. And 
we're making sure that, that he's front and center. I mentioned earlier that Sonny was a ring announcer for one of these matches. That's another thing that's always sort of been curious to me. She's been your most downloaded celebrity on AOL. Clearly she's got, uh, something that fans want to see, but she's not figured in here. Storyline wise. She's just doing some backstage skits with doc Hendricks and doing some ring announcing. Were you guys trying to figure out what to do with the ladies in this era? Cause it doesn't feel like very many of them have a defined role. Yeah. Trying to trying to figure it out, especially her, uh, referring to Sonny because she was such a downloaded entity. Uh, and at that time being the most downloaded pe- person on AOL was a big deal. Uh, I'm sure it'd probably still be a big deal. So yeah. And the way she looked and uh, unique presentation, she certainly wasn't Moolah. She was a star female that didn't look like any of the other star females that preceded her. And, uh, so yeah, you keep try you try to find something for her to do. And, uh, you know, Tammy probably had a little bit too much knowledge of the business cause she was very, uh, she could be, she could be very, uh, discerning, discerning with her or creativity. She, 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 I'm not so sure that she would have been really good on a booking committee. She's very smart. Uh, but yeah, trying to find something for her to do was, was, was there, but you know, the select go back and look at the, we talked about Austin. They came to see Austin stun somebody and drink beer and hopefully say something to Mike Sonny, much the same way in the sense that they came to see her body and her cleavage and her butt and all the other sexy things that you get from that, uh, that deal. So, and she really started the, she really started the, uh, glamor run of these women and, uh, on, on, on WWE television. And, and so she had a big role in that deal. So seeing how she was promoted and how she got over was another historical thing, another element on this bad blood show that was very, uh, meaningful. One of the many things was very meaningful. So we knew that if we got, uh, at the app had could find women with the aptitude, uh, and had sex appeal and athlete, some athleticism, obviously that they could be in those, uh, sunny sable type roles, which is un- totally unlike what you're seeing now with Charlotte and, and, uh, and some of these cats. So on, on WWE or Dr. Britt Baker and AEW or, you know, uh, whatever the case may be. It's just a different ball game, different entity. But we knew that our male demographic by and large enjoyed seeing, uh, sexy, powerful women and Sonny at that era on that, that point in time represented exactly that. So, uh, she was a star that needed more work. Well, Michael Cole is going to do a promo backstage. He's going to catch up with Owen Hart. And Owen's going to say he's going to win the intercontinental title. And he's threatening a lawsuit. If Austin gets involved in this match later, the next segment is something I don't think I'd ever seen on a WWF pay-per-view before. It's the introduction of Gene Kaniski, Jack Briscoe, Harley Ray, Story Funk, Terry Funk, Luthez, Sam Mushnick, and a little package with photos and newspaper clippings of their, uh, entire career. What a tremendous segment and how interesting is it that you guys are doing this on a WWF show. It doesn't seem like something that Vince would normally go for. We did it because it helped us sell tickets to St. Louis. A lot of the St. Louis fans are so loyal. They've been coming for years and years. Uh, you know, obviously the, the event was popular. We did 21, 20, what, 21,000 or where it was yeah. people. 
the, the adding all those famous St. Louis oriented NWA names, including the promoter, Sam Muchnick was done to create local interest and to ostensibly then help sell more tickets. So that's why we did it. It was the right thing to do. I remember us pitching it to Vince Hall. I think Jerry Briscoe and I were the ringleaders of that little deal. Uh, maybe in others, Bruce could have been involved too. He was a big NWA fan as well. So, uh, but, but primarily, uh, Briscoe was, in, uh, we, we signed Briscoe to be kind of the point person because obviously he could talk to all these guys, his brother, Jack, and then Harley, all these guys, the funks, uh, Lou, all of them, they had a great relationships. They had great commonality. So, uh, that was why we did that. It was to create local interest in a market and we did get local interest out of the market as well. It created a, a reason, another reason to come to the keel and join those 21,000 people. In addition to the card we're going to have in the first ever hell in a cell match, you got to see some of your favorites return to, uh, the scene of some of their greatest triumphs and tragedies. Cornette was loving this. He's gone on record as saying, uh, he couldn't wait to go get all their autographs. So. You know, when you've got a guy like Cornette excited, who's seen and done it all, you've done something pretty cool. Uh, did you line up the appearance of all these legends? Were you the guy making the calls for this? No, Briscoe did. Okay. I, I, I signed off on it. Sure. And I may have talked to some, uh, but basically we had Jerry do it because Jerry had the time when he wasn't on the road, he wasn't on, he wasn't on the road, to all the house shows. Uh, he did a lot of TVs, obviously, uh, but Jerry just was a better con contact, uh, for it than, you know, and we created a nice little payday for them. Uh, so it was good. And, uh, uh, they, they appreciate it. They, they enjoyed seeing each other. They enjoyed seeing the boys that were on our roster at that time. The boys enjoyed seeing them. It was a real win-win deal all the way around. I'm so glad that we did that. And then you look back on it now here in 2019, and so many of those guys that we had there as our honored guests are no longer with us. Uh, I'm sure glad that we got a chance to do that. And quite honestly, it took a little bit of the sting off Brian Pillman's death to that day, a little bit, because you saw the sparkle in the eyes of some of these older guys, Sam Mushick looking around and seeing uh, all these amazing stars that he helped develop and put on the map. Uh, it was just a good feeling thing. And I think at that, on that day, I think I did the interview in the ring with those guys, introduced them and all that stuff. Uh, it was a, uh, it was a welcome. We needed that happiness. We needed that twinkle in our eye from watching our, some of our heroes get honored and get those great ovations again. And it was, it was heartwarming Conrad really, because a lot of the guys, the, the, the wrestlers that we were honoring were, some of them were concerned that, well, will will these fans remember us and, uh, that was very easy to dissuade their apprehensions because once the, they were introduced, uh, it, you could tell that the fans love seeing these guys there. And I love the fact that we were able to bring them all together and never before, never again, to my knowledge was that that same group of distinguished men from pro wrestling ever together in a, uh, an official environment like that. So we did some good things that day. And again, we talked about this show, bad blood being, uh, dotted with history and things that were, would be significant going forward. And to me, a part of the wrestling history was enjoyed that day and, 
and the keel with all those former NWA champions. A lot of glasses in this segment. Do you need new prescription eyeglasses or sunglasses, but don't want to break the bank? Well, $39glasses.com is an American company that's owned by two eye doctors right there in Long Island, New York. To get your exact fit, just visit 39glasses.com and use the virtual try-on tool they've created. Take a selfie, and it allows you to see exactly how the frames will look on you before you even purchase them. To make your glasses, they use high-quality materials and name-brand lenses to create your glasses at a fraction of the price. Health as well, so your vision is key. Uh, I uh, just can't promote this enough. Uh, the vision aspect of this thing and getting it done accurately, properly, and affordably. It's a good deal. Yeah. I was used to paying over 300 bucks for a pair of glasses and to get a pair for 39. Well, I got it a little cheaper because I used the promo code girl 10, but $39 glasses.com. It's a real thing. It's not a gimmick. They're a real disruptor. Just like you've heard with razor blades and in another industry. This is the new way I'm doing this. I got my wife on it. We love it. $39 glasses.com. Use that promo code grill 10, save another 10 bucks. I can't believe that's even possible. I don't know how they're making profit, but Lord bless them. $39 glasses.com. Let's talk about, um, what we're doing next on the show. We've got Michael Hayes in the back or doc Hendricks, rather interviewing Farouk and the nation about his match with Owen. And then afterwards, Vince McMahon gives an update on Brian Pillman's death. And he says, no foul play is suspected, but there is suspicion of an overdose. And Vince makes sure here to point out that that's a problem in all of sports. Uh, in hindsight, maybe this doesn't age well, but Vince, for whatever reason, felt like he needed to get in front of this worried about his company and all the folks who work there. What'd you make of, uh, the decision to give an update and for Vince to make a statement like that right in the middle of the show? Well, the update I had no problem with, I didn't think we needed to go as far to talk about all the sports cause all it, it felt like we're just, it's a CYA cover your ass. And I didn't think that was necessary. You know, we didn't do anything to, uh, facilitate Brian's death. You know, we, we were trying to be proactive at some point talents have got to look in the mirror and that's the person that's got to make these final, final decisions. But I didn't, I didn't think it hasn't aged well. And I don't think that we needed to do that, but I understand getting ahead of the curve being proactive. I got all that. Uh, I just felt like that could have probably been safe for another day, another environment, another platform, but it was what it was, as they say. And, uh, but the, just the, the, the concept of giving an update as this new information was being made, uh, uh, made, made available to us. I didn't have a problem with that. Just the other part, the one thing about big problem in all the sports he, look, here's the thing at the end of the day, he's right. There, it is a big problem in sports then, and it still is. But however, uh, that doesn't mean we should have utilized it at that point in time. So in any event, it was, what it was what it was in that regard. Uh, and I just felt like it, in the middle of the show, it may have added a little bit of a damper. We already got past this. We've already discussed this. We already talked about this. We, people know that Brian passed away hours before, uh, in, in Minneapolis. So I, I, I just didn't. It didn't, it didn't resonate with me, Conrad whatsoever. Again, if nothing else, blatantly CYA and, uh, and again, the, maybe the other thing is that it just kind of put uh, oh yeah, Brian passed away. Uh, it, it went back to putting a damper on things. We had to work our way back out of and move forward in a more positive way. 
Of course, next up, Owen Hart wins the vacant intercontinental title from Farouk when Steve Austin would hit Farouk with the title belt. And the idea here, of course, is Steve wants Owen to win the belt. So he gets a shot at Owen at survivor series. Uh, Meltzer would say Hart looked like he was mentally somewhere else, probably because he was. How affected do you think Brian was with Owen's passing? Big time. They were buddies. They trained together. They, they hung together in Calgary when Brian was playing football for the Calgary Stampeders and, the and the hearts were bricking Brian into wrestle. Uh, you know, Brian and Owen were in the same, the ballpark age wise and, and you know, which means they had many the same interests and, and likes and dislikes and things of that nature. Uh, he was obviously very affected by it. He was listless that day because it was hard for him to believe that somebody as viable and as vibrant as Brian, especially the Brian that Owen grew up knowing, uh, was gone. So I think it had a, a effect on it. You know, Owen Hart could not have a bad match. I don't think it was within his power to go out and have a bad match. But you could tell that he didn't quite have the giddy up and go uh, uh, that he normally would. And that was all, I think, like you mentioned, Conrad, because of, uh, of Brian Pillman's passing. Next up, DOA are going to wrestle Los Bariquas for nine minutes and 11 seconds. Um, Meltzer would say these eight only had a few minutes lead time to get dressed and put together a match. So they had an excuse and Vince and, uh, yourself are uh, on air acknowledging that you've had to scramble and make some adjustments to the card. What do you remember about throwing this match together at the last minute here? We basically just looked at our roster and to see who was available. You mark off everybody that's booked and then who on your uh, sheet of your talent sheet of baby faces and heels, uh, is available. And so, you know, we, we had that little, both the Bariquas, uh, and the DOA good company, men. Uh, we felt like even on a short notice, they were the kind of guys that were raised in a territory and had great experience. They didn't need to sit down and talk about their match all day. Memorize this. You do that. I'll do this. Okay. Then you nothing. They, they, and, but the match was cold. Uh, and I don't know that Vince and I did him any favors by saying, you know, this, this is a, where this match is being added to the card due to Brian Pillman's, uh, passing. I don't know that helped their cause either, but it wasn't, it was a non-advertised match that found its way on the pay-per-view. It did not get a great response because it was colder ice. And, uh, but I admire the guys for doing what they could on such short notice with no story. No, essentially no story involved whatsoever, just a tag match. And that kind of bit him in the ass from the fans perspective. It did not get over, but, but did you, did we really think it was going to get it over? I didn't, I didn't, I don't think Vince did either, but it's what we needed to do. We needed a match and those guys, we could depend on them. Next up. We've got Bret Hart and Davey boy taking on Vader and the Patriot. They're going to go 23 minutes and 13 seconds. Meltzer would say this was supposed to be a flag match, but for reasons not made clear, the rules were changed just as the match got started. And it was basically just a regular match. The flags were on poles in opposite corners and the rules were you could win by capturing the flag, but there was no climbing the poles at all during the match, which makes me think the poles weren't secure enough. And they changed the rules. Uh, it, uh, it was a walking wounded match because Davy boy's knee was bothering him. Vader had a broken, broken nose and a hyperextended elbow. 
Patriot had a viral infection earlier in the week. So lots of injuries to go around here. What do you remember about the rules to this being changed? And, uh, what'd you think of, uh, the concept of flag match second from the top in this America versus Canada angle. Didn't have probably flag match aspect of it. Um, I thought the match would have been better than it was considering who was in it. But, uh, because of what you mentioned, Conrad, about the injuries, illnesses, uh, you know, it just wasn't there, uh, for whatever reason, sometimes things like that just don't click. And you would think because of the level of talent, the great skill sets these guys had that they can't have a bad match. Well, they, they, they proved the fact that just about anybody can have a bad match. And, and that's one thing you rarely say about a Bret Hart match. You know, uh, if we perceive that that match was not, uh, at the top level as we all wanted, including the talents, uh, it's one of the few times you can ever say that Bret Hart was involved in a match. It wasn't, uh, a stellar match and this was not a stellar match. It underdelivered for the reasons that we discussed, but, uh, it was sort of, it was low to star power. It had a lot of box office sizzle. It's just that oh, because of injuries and bumps and bruises and, and, and illness, it never, it never got, it never got any traction. And so therefore it really never got over. It's a shame that, that he's gone so quickly after this, this is really his, his last major show. You know, he had essentially been in prime spots, you know, for a few months here and then very quickly. He's not long for this world in an, in an alternate universe. Do you think the Patriot could have been a top guy with the company long-term? Uh, long-term, not sure. Likely not. Uh, but he got better as he went along. Dale Wilkes, hell of an athlete, you know, all American football player at South Carolina, I believe a uh, big timer, big time college uh, ball player. Uh, but Dell has some issues that we were not totally aware of, to be honest with you, uh, drug issues that, uh, and that ended up biting him in the ass, but big time athlete. I just think that I don't know how good he could have gotten because we never got to see it. Uh, he was evolving as he went along. He was growing. Uh, he didn't have a big track record of drawing a lot of money here and there. Uh, we hired him because he had a great body, uh, real good athletic talents, uh, nice guy, really a nice guy, very polite, very professional, but he just had that damn monkey on his back of the, of the, of the pills and stuff. And, you know, until you, somebody makes a mistake, uh, you know, and you give them and you, they have their physical and they don't, they don't have large quantities of these, uh, dangerous, uh, drugs in their system. You don't know. So, uh, but Dale was a good guy, good hand. I can always see him hovering in near the top of the card, Conrad, to your question, but I don't know. I didn't see enough of him to know that over the long haul, if he would have been able to hold up to the rigors of what we we're doing, cause he was, he was beat up too. A lot of those football players come in the, to the league, WWE, for example, with bad shoulders, you know, they're hitting people, dislocations, separations, uh, neck injuries. And so Dale had that baggage with him in addition to the other stuff, but a hell of a good guy. I'm glad we hired him. I don't have any regrets there. I just wish we could have got him on a straight path and he would have probably been closer to what you projected, uh, a top guy, but I thought his at best, he would have been a top guy 
under the right circumstance, but maybe not a top guy as a single. I might be wrong about that too. So, but I don't regret having him hiring him and bringing him in. Uh, he was, a, he's a top guy in that respect, but just, I didn't know if he had the experience or the commitment and these other distractions that were, were eating at him, uh, was never going to let him be as good as he could be. How does it come to an end? Do you ask him to leave or does he ask to leave? I don't, I think it would come to a pretty good consensual thing. He had to get, he had to get these issues addressed and, uh, we could, we could not continue to do business with him, uh, under that current auspices of his health, mental health, uh, dependent, dependence on uh, painkillers, things of that nature. Uh, it just, it can't, it was inevitable. It had to happen. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you do that, you hope that you're, you're saving a guy's life. Uh, it's not being mean spirited, but you can't have a guy that may be, you're not sure, but he may be impaired and have him, uh, charged and obligated with the obligation of taking care of his opponent's body and their livelihood and their general health. And so that was the trust issue became there. And it wasn't because Dell was a bad guy it was because Dell's drugs were bad. And he was, uh, it, he was not, he's getting beat up by those and, and instead of anything else. But, uh, I did, I don't remember exactly, uh, uh, I'm sure I told him, you know, well, we're, we're going to have to move on and uh, without you. Uh, but I don't uh, today's auspices. And I'm not so sure that I'm not, I don't know for sure that he hasn't speaking of uh, Dale Wilkes and the Patriot that he hasn't uh, taken advantage of WWE's, uh, program for the alumni on, uh, rehabilitations, things of that nature. That was a bigger deal, Conrad, than him getting over. That was a bigger deal than him being a top guy. Uh, we finally have a mass guy that was kind of, you know, different and a good body and all that good stuff. The, what this still story was about was getting him clean and sober so he could live. And that was, that was much bigger than any of the other stuff. So, and that's what made that job in talent relations so stressful. And, you know, you get emotionally involved in these guys and you'd meet their families and they all knew that dad had an issue or the husband had an issue and you gotta, you gotta work around it. You gotta work through it. And the only way, the only solution we had is that it's the same old deal. Jimmy Johnson once said the old coach of Dallas, the Dallas Cowboys said, uh, if I can't solve your problem, I don't have one choice. That's to eliminate it. And wrestling is a lot that way. You do everything you can to solve someone's problem, but for whatever reason, that solution is not being, is not sticking or they're not, the talent isn't committed to that. You only got one option. They got to go. So if you don't want to help yourself, I can't help you if you don't want to help yourself. And, and Dell was in that deep on that stuff. And, uh, I'm glad that he's, you know, it worked out the way it did, but he was a great guy to be around. And it just, it just shows you how a little white pill can just can destroy so many facets of one's life and unnecessarily, quite frankly. It's crazy to, uh, to think that that's going to be the end for him. Let's talk about Bret Hart though, because Bret's in the main event in July and has one hell of a match in Calgary at the stampede show. And he's in the main event the next month in August at SummerSlam and he becomes the world champion. But now on the two following pay-per-views, September and now October, Undertaker and Shawn Michaels go on last. Bret Hart is your world champion. Does not. Does Bret take issue with that? I know he was very competitive. I think anybody would take issue with it if they're the champion and you're and you're on a card that's not you're not going on last. Uh, 
That's much like uh, people were criticizing uh, All Out when Jericho and Hangman Page closed the show to, to determine the new at first AEW champion. Uh, and the match and the show closure wasn't the ladder match, the ladder tag match with the uh, Lucha Brothers and uh, the Young Bucks. Uh, a lot of people thought because of the way, the, in hindsight, obviously, that the the tag team ladder match was more spectacular than was the uh, match for the title. But if you're going to put your title in a position of respect, meaningful, be more meaningful, et cetera, et cetera, it needs to go, it needs to close the show. I can promise you that, uh, you know, Brett was always a classic guy. If he had this pleasure, uh, he wouldn't be, he's not the kind of guy that goes from locker room to locker room to, 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 uh, become a locker room lawyer and, uh, and express himself in a negative way. That's just not his style. Uh, but I, I know that he was not overwhelmed with that deal, but the fact that got him off the, the fact that got him over that hump was the fact that it was a hell in a cell, big time buildup for the, for that gimmick match. First time ever brand new and taker was in it. So Taker being in that match solved a lot of issues. It had been Sean and somebody else. I'm sure there could have been a more of a little bit of a, more of an uprising or consternation displayed, but, uh, it was Taker being in it. You, you approach it a little bit differently, but I, I, I could not, Brett can make a very viable argument. You know, you could have that ladder, ma- the, uh, excuse me, the hell in a cell match on earlier. Uh, but everybody thought it would be too hard to follow and they were right. And, uh, so even though it wasn't the ideal way to, to do your lineup, I think in that case with who all was in it and the nature of that first ever match, if it, it was still the right thing to do. Let's talk about the main event. We've been, uh, heading here for a while. There's so much going on with this. I guess we'll start with the beginning. Whose idea was the structure hell in a cell? When do you first remember that being pitched or presented? Because just a couple months prior to this, you've got mankind and triple H in a cage match and it's the old big blue cage. This is yeah. the first time we see the fence and, uh, with a top on it. And it doesn't just go to the canvas. It goes around the outside, totally different presentation. When do you remember it first coming out? Uh, Vince told me that we're going to do this new match and we're going to, we're going to build a new cage. That's good. So it didn't have a name. Uh, it didn't have hell in a cell. But, uh, then obviously that evolved, but Vince told me about it, what he was going to do. And I'm sure it came from creative, uh, the creative guys had an, had an idea, uh, and had it and had it planned out because the finish the month before with a non-finish, uh, necessitated the hell in a cell match. And so, uh, uh, Vince told me about it. And like I said, I think he got it from the creative guys. He signed off on it. They blessed it. Uh, you know, they put a top on it and, you know, so somebody can't climb over the cage, you know, and the beautiful part for me was it got rid of that, uh, stupid ass stipulation that you can escape the cage and still, and win. So you can run from your fight. You can avoid, you can, you can evade, you can retreat. You can, you can go over the top and win. I've always thought that was a bullshit finish. I think it was put into play to, to appease some talents who didn't want to get pinned thinking that 
they would never be the same by dropping a fall in a cage because cages were historically used as a blow off. The only time a heel would win is if you had uh, a big angle and the baby face got blatantly screwed. Uh, most baby face are too fragile and ego to, to either lose by submission and, or to lose by uh, losing a cage. So, uh, but Vince told me about it and I uh, put in the top, the, the roof on it was a real, I thought creative idea because it look is going to look really good. And when that son of a bitch lowered, man, it was, uh, it was impressive structure. I mean, it was, it was kind of all inspiring how big this was and, and all that stuff. So, uh, it was just a new cage match. The old blue cage was a cage that when Hogan was uh, the top baby face there in a the territory at 300 pounds. And a lot of the guys he wrestled were in that same size Bundy's and John studs and other guys, the blue cage was easier to climb and it was easier to work around for some of those bigger guys. Uh, the fence, uh, daunting, but, uh, it daunting in a good way that guys had to figure it out. So Sean and Taker, I thought for the first outing did about all they could do in that damn thing. Cause it was brand new. And what do you, what do you do over the years? You know, they, they started putting, uh, holes in the, in the fence. So you climb it and get on top easier. Cause the first time somebody tried that was you think, my God, they're not going to be able to make this thing. Cause they're having to, there's no place to put their feet. And so that was kind of that deal, but it was, a, it was unique. I was excited about it because Conrad, it was something new. Right. And it made sense based on the storyline leading into it. So I, I, I kind of dug it. Let's talk about the, uh, cage match and how it's put together. You know, you said it, it's a new structure. There's a top on it. It's never been done before. Uh, these days it feels like, you know, before the, the doors open for fans that the guys would bring the cage down and they'd try to walk through some stuff and figure out, Hey, what can we do with this thing? Were they doing that here? Or were they just figuring it out in front of everybody for the very first time? Uh, they were figuring it out as they went. They both had ideas on what they wanted to do, but they were, they were filling out the, uh, they're figuring it out and see what they, what would work and what wouldn't work. So yeah, it was a experimental, but again, you had two guys in the ring that had great ring savvy, great skill sets, uh, and could adapt to the, their surroundings and their opponent. So, uh, and Taker and Sean uh, did exactly that. And, and look, there was no love loss between at that, in that era between Taker and Sean, there was no love loss between Sean and anybody. Sean was kind of a lone wolf and really the only guy that he really associated with much was uh, Hunter triple H. So, uh, it was all business, man. It was all business and you could tell the seriousness of the match and how focused everybody was. There would be no bullshit from Sean in that match. There would be no ha ha, as Pat Patterson would say, or Bruce. No ha ha. Uh, Taker was dead serious. He was losing in a, in a crazy ass way. But, uh, you know, we all thought that the hell in the cell would become Taker's match, much like the casket match. But then over time, he started losing some casket matches. So the hell, I thought, well, the hell in the cell is going to be Taker's specialty. And uh, we've seen it used, obviously, more abundantly without taker. But at that time, the first one, oh, this could be takers new gig. And cause I never thought in my wildest dreams that, that Sean would be taker in that environment, but the way it was done was extremely creative. 
Let's uh, tell you the, the stipulation here, of course, is the winner is going to get a title shot against the WWF champion at Survivor Series. So Brett is the champ. The winner is going to face Brett for the belt a month later. Um, Michaels is going to come out first with Triple H, China, and Rick Rude. Of course, The Undertaker is out next, and Meltzer could not praise this enough. If you're going to watch one match this week from back in the day on this very momentous wrestling week, this is the one. The first hell in a cell ground zero Sean and undertaker go 29 59. So right at 30 minutes, Meltzer would say an absolute classic must see match, probably five stars. Michaels did everything. And then even more than everything, uh, of course, the big moment in the match comes when he winds up knocking down a cameraman and beating him up that causes, uh, Sergeant slaughter, the commissioner to come down and open the door, which would in theory, allow them both to leave the cage. Um, you know, what's going to happen. There's going to be the big bump off the side of the cage with Sean through the table, but the big moment that everyone is looking for is, uh, the undertaker and this big family secret being revealed. There's a ref bump undertaker does a choke slam in the middle, a big chair shot to the head. And then the lights go out and Paul bear brings out the debuting cane. And Kane uses a tombstone on the undertaker. And this allows Shawn Michaels to make the pin. So Shawn wins with interference from the debuting Kane. A lot to unpack here. We'll start with the little details. Do you know who the cameraman was? I'm sure it was one of the boys or a local talent. I don't remember, uh, but I remember the spot. Obviously it was somebody that was a, a talent, uh, some, probably some underneath guy, I'm guessing. I don't know. But it was, it would have been somebody that could, could quote unquote train to take a bump. Uh, so I, I remember the, I remember those guys, uh, I remember the walkthrough on blocking a shot off where, he, where this cameraman needed to be to transact his business. But I can't remember who that, who that cameraman was, to be honest with you. I think the, uh, the, the bump off the side would still be one of the more spectacular bumps had the stakes not been raised so high in what, uh, nine months, of course, in 1998 with that hell in a cell with undertaker and mankind, everything changes. But in this era, this bump with Shawn Michaels coming off the side of the cage through the announce table, it's gotta be one of the biggest bumps of the year. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, it was jaw dropping and it, but again, you're surprised at the moment. But then going back and thinking about it, well, shouldn't be that surprised because that's just what, that's what he does. You know, that's what we do here this, in this, in this world. So, uh, again, it's hard to fathom Conrad, two other talents doing as well as, uh, undertaker and Michaels in that first ever, uh, hell in a cell in that environment, not knowing what worked in the past. What, how, how do we do this? How do we address the, the roof? How do we address on the, getting on the outside? Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that, that were un, unknown, but those two guys made it work. And I wonder if a lesser experienced, less seasoned, uh, talents with less feel than those two could have pulled that off. I don't think they could have. The, uh, the idea for Kane to rip off the door, I believe was a Jim Cornette idea. Um, 
he said that Kevin Sullivan debuted Doug Furnace in Knoxville years before where the baby face is getting a beat down in the ring. And then furnace comes out to make the save and then pulls the door off the cage. So a nice little touch to debut Kane here. Kane has been sort of in the background, uh, as Paul Bearer has been teasing this secret all summer long. And now we finally see what the secret is. And Vince has a, a huge call here. That's gotta be, that's gotta be Kane <laughs> that we've seen for years and years. Glenn Jacobs, man, he was nothing. If not persistent, he, he hung in the pocket through Isaac Yankum DDS. He somehow survived fake diesel in this year. And now here he is in the character that is going to make him a multimillionaire. What do you remember about Kane and why was Glenn Jacobs the right guy? I met uh, Glenn in, uh, when he was wrestling for Cornette and Smoky mountain wrestling and you know, Cornette probably had a bigger hand in what that cage was going to look like and, uh, the purpose it was going to serve than, uh, anybody on the, on the team. Uh, that's, he was just that amazing student of the game and, uh, was really good at that kind of thing. But I was doing some commentary for Cornette in Smoky mountain wrestling. And, uh, and that's where I met Unabomber who was Glenn Jacobs. And then, you know, you sat down and talked to him. He's articulate. He's intelligent. He's educated. You find out from Cornette that he's never been in a single problem about doing any finishes or being, or, or showing up to work on time or any of those basic things that you want to make sure you've got your, your covered on. Uh, and I, I just hit it off with him really, really well. And I, I told Vince, uh, that was, I told Vince, I said, this guy looks like it said in a lot of ways. He's big. He's six, nine, six, 10, somewhere in that neighborhood. He's 300 pounds. He's very athletic, played two sports in college. You know, again, he got his college degree. People said, why, why does J.R. Harper just doing college degree stuff? Let me tell you why folks, real simple. Number one, oftentimes it, it indicates the intelligent level, intelligence level of an individual, but more importantly, it shows me that they started a project, i.e. a college education and they finished it. Remember. Quitting's the easiest thing in the world to get good at folks. It really is. And so a guy that goes through a, a an athletic program, a, a court, a classroom work and succeeds, uses all his eligibility and then graduates to me, that's the kind of guy that you can rely on reliability again. So, uh, I had, I told Vince about him and I said, I, I would like to bring him to a TV. So uh, we had TVs coming up, I believe in Georgia. And I want to say that we brought Glenn in to work in Augusta. Ironic where I had my big meeting with Vince back to get it all started for me there in 93. Uh, so we brought him in and, and they, everybody loved him. He's polite, professional on time. His gear was clean. His shoes were shined. He looked like a professional. And then unfortunately, Carter, as you so accurately pointed out, he went through some shitty, uh, gimmicks. Dr. Yankum, really? I can see having an evil dentist with bad teeth, but when you name him such, something so absurdly ridiculous as Dr. Isaac Yankum, people laugh about it. Right. They, they roll their eyes on it. And, and you want them to hate this big monster, not laugh at him. So, uh, Glenn, you're right. Glenn helped, helped, stood his ground, stood in place. It eventually worked out. And then he, he took ownership to Glenn 
of the uh, of the cane character, and it was absolutely uh, wonderful. It, it hey, it had such an effect on Bruce and in the sun after him, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, without a doubt. This is the character that's nearest and dearest to Bruce, and we uh, loved this guy. And Bruce, and Bruce did a real good job of helping uh, uh, form fashion this uh, character because Bruce had this great relationship with Taker, probably closer than anybody on the roster. So uh, it worked out. It, we all won on that deal. And the main thing is that WWE got a, uh, a future Hall of Famer, you know, after they started out in, in, a, in a little a TV taping of two or 300 people there at, wearing a, a, a mask as the Unabomber. So, uh, it was amazing, amazing success story. And now he's the mayor of, uh, Knox County, Tennessee. So, uh, I'm proud of Glenn. Glenn's Glenn's like really a star. He's a keeper and you could not get many, you could get better people to come into your locker room and join the, join the team than Glenn Jacobs. He's perfect for that deal. And that's why I always talk about guys fitting in the locker room and what, what is the past experiences? Can we equate the, being a teammate, being in a group? Uh, well, lots of times that's in sports and organized sports and Glenn checked all those boxes. Uh, and so one of the best, if he's not the best, he's probably the most underrated hire that I ever made It's called coming in with just a great big body and knowing he's a good human being, but can he get over, can he develop the skill set to know how to get over and become a star? And obviously all those answers, uh, all those questions have been answered many times over. Cornette has said that, uh, if Glenn Jacobs didn't make Kane work, he's going to be fired. Is this, did you think going into this as good of a guy as he was, this might be Glenn's last chance to get over? Well, I knew kind of like we talked earlier about Mark Henry, you know, at some point in time, you got a fish or cut bait and, uh, uh, and we had trained Mark so many, so long with different guys, different coaches that he needed to change. Glenn had been saddled with some lousy gimmicks. Uh, and a lot of guys that were more discerning, perhaps, or more egocentric would not have tolerated it, but, uh, but Glenn did. And he, again, as I said earlier, he stood his ground. Uh, but I'm sure that if working with taker as takers brother, that's pretty good company, man. If that didn't work. What, what else is there left? Yeah. What else can we do? I think that's kind of where we were. It wasn't because Glenn wasn't getting, Glenn didn't know how to work or right. Glenn was not reliable. Conrad, he just, uh, you know, he, he was saddled with some, you can't shine shit. Right. And, and that's what we were giving him at that point in time. And thank God he tolerated it. And, and the rest is history. As they say, let's talk about the look. Um, Bruce has said that there were a couple different versions of the mask made and uh, there's even a picture of him, I think in Madison square garden, wearing a cape to the ring and on the original drawings that were shown recently of Kane, we would see him with a cape. Uh, what was the creative process like for, you know, the, the people who were putting together the look for these characters in 1997? Well, you get people that are, that are, that they do, they are designers. Uh, cause that mask was not, you could tell that mask was not a, uh, idea of a, of a of a talent. It was a, it was a heavy, it was leather. It stunk. Uh, and I know this because Glenn's last mask 
until recently he gave to me when I opened one of my barbecue restaurants. So I still got that mask. Uh, and I can tell you, that's just, you know, the leather and the perspiration and whatever else, blood or whatever, uh, could have an adverse effect on its smell, its texture, drying out, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a kind of a Hollywood type presentation. And because, uh, and I know Bruce was very involved in it because again, he had a stronger emotional investment than, than, than many, uh, but it's outsiders, outsiders doing it because I believe that if you had a, somebody, uh, I, I wonder about, uh, Bray Wyatt's, uh, uh, mask, if it's same deal, it's a Hollywood creation. Is it done more in a stunt man like deal as opposed to a functional wrestling mask? I don't know the answer to these questions, but certainly Kane's mask. Uh, he endured it. And, uh, and so he, and I never heard him say a word about it till later on, like, well, when he gave me the mask, he said, you know, it's going to stink Jr. Cause I, you can't wash them. You can't clean them. They're leather. So, uh, it was, a, it was, a. It, I thought it was perfect. I thought it was spot on. This wasn't, it wasn't, it was great in eight by tens. It was great to walk to the ring. I'm not so how sure how great it was to wear night after night, but, uh, old Glenn made it work. He would figure that out the very first night. The rumor and innuendo was when he picks Undertaker up for the tombstone, he's trying to turn him toward the hard camera, but he can't find it because the mask had moved on him. So mm-hmm. he can't exactly see, and he's just hoping to feel it out. And I guess if you didn't know that, you just look, you think, well, he's turning around to show off how strong he is. But in reality, he's just trying to find the hard camera. And Meltzer would also say that. Kane's wearing lifts in his boot here. He's already a, a big bastard and now he's got lifts in here too. That's probably going to take some getting used to to move around. Yeah, it does. A little, it messes up your equilibrium a little bit and your balance more specifically, but it was also just a part of the presentation. You know, we, uh, he needs to be bigger, bigger than taker. And he was thicker than taker, but, uh, the lifts kind of helped him out there a little bit. Uh, to me, that was splitting hairs a little bit the, the lifts, but Hey, look, if he can make it work and he did, then have at it. I didn't, I don't know if it was necessary, but it wasn't a bad thing. We should also mention that, uh, and this is kind of a, an interesting little footnote. The next night on raw, that's when the guys would first call themselves degeneration X. And we would also see on that day, rockabilly turned against the honky tonk man by hitting him over the head with a guitar and he joins road dog to form a team. So a lot happening in this era. It's fun to look back at this is the debut of Kane. And the next day is the genesis of not only degeneration X, but also the new age outlaws so much meat on the bone this week. We hope you guys have enjoyed uh, what we're doing here. We've had a lot of fun doing it. And I'm, I gotta tell you, I'm excited for what's next on the calendar. We've got it all lined up. We'll run through some of the topics. Now we're going to be doing hell in a cell 2009, which I'm going to tell you is probably. Uh, the most recent topic I've ever covered on one of these podcasts, uh, because Bruce was not there. So you were there. We'll get back in our way back machine and talk about DX, which is Shawn Michaels and triple H in the main event, another hell in a cell, of course, against legacy, uh, which is Cody Rhodes and Ted DiBiase. And given what everybody's talking about this week, that should be a fun match to cover. In the undercard, we've got Kofi Kingston, Jack Swagger, and The Miz for the United States Championship. We've also got Drew McIntyre and R-Truth. We've got Randy Orton and John Cena in Hell in a Cell for the WWE Championship. We've got Big Show and Jericho taking on Batista and Rey Mysterio. Mickey James in there with Alicia Fox. John Morrison 
back with Dolph Ziggler. And the Undertaker is taking on CM Punk in a Hell in a Cell match too. Lots of meat on the bone, lots of stuff to talk about. What do you remember about this show? What do you think we might talk about next week? Well, the array of talent that we had uh, put together uh, and their evolution to me is what we talk about because the the big, I don't want to say the exact beginnings, but the the I would I would say uh, honestly the infancy of a lot of these guys' career. Uh, that were all hungry to get to the next level really took massive steps forward and upward, if you will, uh, on this show. Uh, a lot of guys started showing hall of fame tendencies. A lot of guys started showing that, Hey, we are ready for the main event. And, and that's what we needed. That's what won the Monday night wars is that we got new talents over, uh, new keyword here is new. And that's the same thing that, uh, uh, you know, the news aspect is, we're all fans of that stuff. All what the fans will see all week. There's going to be a lot of surprises, a lot of new things on TV wrestling, because most bookers believe that the one way to get the audience talking is to surprise them. And I, I agree with that in con in theory, but the surprises have to be good surprises and not surprises for surprises sake, because the fans will buy anything. If it's a surprise, if it's new, and that is not true, that is not true. So. Uh, again, the steps forward in solidifying the WWE as the preeminent brand in the, in, within pro wrestling, uh, the hall of fame legacy, a lot of guys, you, the guys you mentioned, good Lord, Conrad, that was a, they could, that's a whole hall of fame right there. There's a lot of guys that, you know, just that these steps in this early, early going was what made them brought them to the dance. So I love these kind of shows. And the thing about it for me is that. I have never watched this show back much like I had never watched bad blood until this week. Uh, that was my weekend, uh, on Sunday. So, uh, but I, I love this aspect of it because I remember things that I had heretofore had forgotten or suppressed. And, uh, you know, I, the, like today's show talking, my, my thoughts are monopolized by Brian Pillman's death. And, and that was just a shame because of all the great things that happened on the show, as far as matches and the NWA guys and all this much Nick and his, his group of the, so I'm talking about. So it was hard. It was hard to, uh, it's hard to watch some of them, but boy, it sure is it, quite frank at the same time, it's a hell of a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to watching, uh, this show and talking about it, trying to pick out some things that, uh, might not, might've been overlooked that all went and part of the building of these personas. And that's what saved our ass. That's what got us back on solvent ground. And that's what helped turn the company to go from privately owned to publicly owned where matches and pay-per-views like the ones we're going to talk about today and next week, for example, uh, very key things to the overall long-term success and financial health of, uh, the WWE, no doubt. Well, we appreciate you tuning in this Thursday and every Thursday right here on Westwood one. We'd be remiss if we didn't remind you we're coming to Nashville with our good friend, Tony Schiavone. We're going to get together right after the AEW television presentation circle. Your calendars. Now it's November 13th at Zany's in Nashville. Tickets yeah. are on sale now at supershowlive.com. That's supershowlive.com on the heels of a big TV show. You know, there's no telling who might stop by, but I know you're stopping by this weekend, man. You're going to be down in Alabama and you're going to be I, at Fanaticon. I am Fanaticon and Dothan. I'll be there Saturday and Sunday. 
with our good friend Raphael Morphy, uh, one of the big pieces of the backbone of AEW, quite frankly. Uh, Raphael and I are going to go from uh, D.C. to Dothan. Uh, probably won't even notice the difference in culture. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, Washington, D.C. to Dothan, Alabama. But I'm looking forward to going down and we're bringing our barbecue sauces and, uh, and uh, all of our condiments and books. And we're going to sign things, sign your swag at uh, the this event in Dothan. It's just, I'm looking forward. I've been, we've been talking about it a long time. So it's finally here this weekend. Family fun, affordable. Come out and join us. Come out and say hello uh, on Saturday and Sunday in Dothan at Fanaticon. I think you'll have a great time, and I'd love to see some of y'all. And set your calendar, man. Next week, Hell in a Cell 2009. After that, we'll cruise through Taboo Tuesday 04, In Your House Buried Alive 96, Halloween Havoc 89, Hashtag Ask JR Anything, Clash of the Champions 9, which was New York Knockout with Flair and Funk, Survivor Series 95, and we'll round up November with an episode dedicated to Jerry Lawler. So set your calendar, tell your friends, hit the subscribe button, and we'll see you next week and every week right here on Grillin' JR with Jim Ross. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.